Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, welcome to episode 21 of the Canadian Wargamer podcast with me, Mike. And I'm James. James, how are you now? Well, we're okay. It's been a day, but you know. Well, it is me in the rectory of solitude with uh, my dog Brody, who's pacing around. So if you hear any dog noises in the background, that's uh, that's our extra guest tonight, but not our only guest. So well, we our... had I I had some fairly cheeseerific mac and cheese tonight, so might be noises might be for me too. Oh, just okay. just saying. Fortunately, it was good. It was good macaroni and cheese though. Fortunately, the podcast is scent free. <laughs> I have to tell you something about Border Terriers. They fart. Now, I don't know, maybe all dogs fart. Yes. But this dog is a massive little fart machine. And it's uh, probably what you feed them too. Well, which is pretty much everything, as we discussed before we started. Right. Um, now, we have two guests on the show tonight. We have uh, our main guest, who we're going to introduce in a minute, but we also uh, last night talked. Kevin Jacoby, who is one of the guys behind uh, Six Squared Studios in St. Catharines. And he is the subject of our uh, Canadian focus, So, which is kind of strange because everybody in our guest, uh, most of our guests really are Canadian. And most of what we talk about is anyway, but we bore you with details. Yeah. Um, so this, uh, I think I think this, sir, th- this episode is going to be maple smoked bacon wrapped around a maple maple glazed donut it is jam-packed with canadian goodness it would it only is. be more canadian if it was delivered hot served. steaming by a mountie or served on a hockey stick served know. on a hockey stick by a mountie yes but enough of this gay banter let's talk to our guest roger chrysler <laughs> is our guest tonight roger is a um a canadian war gamer yes hi roger hi Hi, you, so you fit right in. You fit right yep. in. We we're, we're looking to talk to Canadian war gamers and by gum, here you are. Yep. Very Another young, youngish grandfather. So Another youngish grandfather. Yep. yep. Devilishly handsome. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's pod, pod stuff, man. You can. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 We haven't quite. As long, you have a, as long as you have a face for radio. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we were doing this in meta, we could uh, like that Facebook thing that. Uh, um, uh, Zuckerberg has spent gazillions of dollars on. We could probably have our own avatars, right? Mm. We oh. could be like cats in Napoleonic uniforms, or I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure there is some fairly easy off-the-shelf software that we could do that. Like if someone had a few minutes and you know, technical savvy and the will to do it. Yeah, and if you want to help us with that, folks, then uh, you can get in touch with us. So the focus oh, is 
focus is drifting away from our guests. So Roger, we're so happy that you're with us tonight. Thank um, you. Tell us about yourself, man. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm going to talk about my family because a lot of my wargaming interests comes from that. And of course, the name Chrysler resounds through retail and Canadian history, of course. Um, so it all goes back to... Well, let me guess, uh, K-Cars. Uh, that's right, yep. Right. Not our proudest moment, but... Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, I've always had the, you know, the uh, joke, oh, Chrysler, you must be uh, yeah, heir to the throne. Or is it? Yeah, right, okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah. anyway... Uh, Thinking way back to 1709, during uh, the War of Spanish Succession, when uh, Mr. Churchill uh, was over there kicking ass, he was my ancestors left the Palatine region of Germany during the, a terrible winter of 1708-1709, uh, and they fled to Britain. And uh, it was a terrible winter. Apparently, the Rhine froze over. The North Sea froze. The grape vines were exploding from the frost and this kind of stuff. So, bad scene all around besides the war. Well, wreck your ice wine. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, this fellow, uh, Johann Philipp Greisler. Okay. Uh, he uh, took his family to... Eventually, they ended up in upstate New York, Dutchess County, which is actually, if any German speaker, it's actually Deutsches County, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a mm -hmm. lot of times, the uh, Dutch people are actually Deutsch people, but that's the way right. they describe themselves. So, right. uh, so anyway, he was. I have, uh, I have a question of that, but I will, actually, I want to go back a, a second ago because I'm. Yep. You know, when you talk about 1709 and the War of the Spanish Succession, yep, that is taxing my my knowledge of the 18th century a little bit. So that's the church really mentioned was the Duke of Marlborough, right? Duke of Marlborough. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Winston um, Churchill's famous ancestor. That's right. Um, Queen Anne's war. It was known as also, right. she was on the throne. Then I think Ireland had just been accepted into the union of uh, great Britain, I right. believe both then, but anyway, that's what's going on. And, uh, so you're, you have an ancestor who's freezing in a terrible winter in Europe, and he decides, for reasons best known to himself, to come to North America? Well, they, they went to Britain first, and they didn't know what to do with all these refugees. Oh, I see. So they came up with a plan. During this war, they were cut off from their... Britain was cut off from their naval supplies uh, coming from Finland, actually. Right. Trees uh, for pine uh, masts and so on. Right. And also... Uh, pitch for tarring the seams of their boats and so on. Mm -hmm. So this plan was they were going to send all these people over to upstate New York and they were going to harvest pitch pine for the Navy. Okay. And the trouble was uh, when they got over there, nobody knew anything how to do it. So the scheme kind of failed, but all of a sudden there's all these German Palatine refugees on the uh, upper Hudson. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, anyway, they lived there. He had a, a large family, uh, one of which uh, became Chrysler Motors eventually through the through the years. It was one of a ancient and back then. My branch, the younger Chryslers, by this name, it had been changed from Chrysler to Chrysler because nobody could spell back then. Uh, he was uh, kind of a uh, merchant and uh, trader, and he settled in the Skahari Valley, which is over from 
the Hudson sort of thing flows into the Mohawk. And uh, they had granted land from Sir William Johnson, who was the big entrepreneur at the time and Indian agent and everything else there. So he knew the Hieronymus Chrysler. He was in with the uh, Six Nations there. He was an officer during the Seven Years' War that helped the, the natives and so on. So he went to Oswego. Uh, he took Oswego a, a on uh, Lake Ontario. And then he went with uh, Sir William Johnson. They took um, Fort Niagara as well. So that was his, that was one war out of the way anyway. So sorry, that's, all, had, the, that's all the French and Indian War we're talking French about. French and Indian War, yep, yep. After that, it was, Canada was British after that, of course. Mm-hmm. But all these people still lived in uh, Upper New York State, and they were fairly friendly with the Lake Mohawks around there. Adam Chrysler, he was one of the Hieronymus's sons. He had about six sons there. And uh, he was also friends with uh, Joseph Brandt. Hmm. Uh, Joseph Brandt, they tried to stay out of the war, but about 1778, the local call it, Committee of Safety was uh, trying to round up all the, the Tories, as they call them, loyalists, as we call them, around there. And uh, Joseph Brandt got word to uh, Adam Chrysler that, uh, you know, he'd best range his people and uh, do something. Right. So they sent cavalry against them anyway. So we're, uh, sorry, we're, we're talking about the American Revolution now. American Revolution by now, yep. 1778. So it's after Quebec and all that kind of stuff too. Right, right. Um, after the, the uh, siege of Quebec and everything else. So anyway, he got his people, he retreated out of there to the Niagara region. And he was helping, you know, uh, Butler, Butler's Rangers and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was involved with them. And also a, a Six Nations officer. So so there was a number of his brothers that also were involved. And my ancestor was named Baltus. He lived in one of the towns there, so he couldn't really get away. He got kind of, it's a mix of stories, whether he got imprisoned during the war because he was uh, suspected to be a Tory loyalist or what. But uh, anyway, he didn't get away. Um the guys with Butler's Rangers, they raided back to Skahari Valley and uh, trying to get their cattle back, their their people, their women, and so on. And uh, they were known as the Blue-Eyed Indians because they hung around with the uh, the Mohawks and were their officers and that kind of stuff, advising them. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in the history books about him. And he's uh, also, Adam Chrysler has reports in the Ontario archives about his goings on during that war afterwards after the war the brothers were kind of split up some of them went to the niagara region some of them went to the saint lawrence region adam he settled near saint david's ontario which is just uh, outside of queenston his younger brother john pliny chrysler now there's there's a thing with the johns here it's it's really hard to differentiate sometimes because it was like the patronymic name was uh, johan so everybody had their first name was John sort of thing. So uh, anyway, John Pliny Chrysler, he was a drummer with Butler's Rangers. And he settled at uh, near Morrisburg, where near where Upper Canada Village is. His was the farm in the, the War, of, War of 1812, the Battle of Chrysler's Farm. So my direct ancestor, which was Baltus's son, he got out of there. He was a late loyalist coming to Canada for the land about 18 or 1790. 
he he wasn't granted any land. He married a loyalist, so came across, so he got to take her land, sort of thing. Got her her to uh, her farm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, hundred acres or something like that, or not very much. Anyway, he was uh, this second Adam, son of Baltus. He was in the early in the war. He was in the fifth Lincoln militia regiment. He was one of the flank company guys, which is one of the more active guys. So he was stationed uh, around Chippewa. He would have been involved in, uh, for one thing, Queenston Heights when uh, Chafe went to retake the Heights sort of thing when they called all the reinforcements up from Chippewa and so on. Also uh, Frenchman's Creek after that. Anyway, the the next spring, of course, was uh, the Battle of York and Battle of Fort George. And all the British were retreating back to Burlington Heights, which wasn't a thing at the time, but would be. And they more or less discharged all the militia to go your own way, make your make your peace as best as you can, because we can't defend you here sort of thing. So the next we hear about Adam is he is arrested November 12th, 1813, as he was tried for treason at the Bloody Assizes. Now, the funny thing is, that was April 12th. April 11th, down on the St. Lawrence, John Pliny Chrysler's farm was, uh, that was the battle there the, the day before sort of thing. So uh, kind of a strange juxtaposition. So I've, my family kind of, they always thought, okay, Chrysler, Chrysler's farm, that's a big deal. And then we started doing the homework when we found out we were related to the other guy. So a lot of my research is trying to find out the backstory of this. What was he doing? What was his story? What was he guilty of? There's not a lot in the records about him. He wasn't really allowed to testify. His wife wasn't allowed to testify for him. So they just said he was one of the worst of the bunch that they arrested at that time. So (laughs) I'm still trying to find that out. And of course, he was one of the guys at the Bloody Assizes at at Burling, at uh, Ancaster. And they were taken out and uh, hung at uh, Hamilton. So he's arrested by the British. That's right, arrested by the British. They wanted to make an example of these people because there was unrest and so on Mm -hmm. at the time. So straighten everybody out and uh, get them on their side sort of thing. So just for for people who don't know anything about this, the the Bloody Assizes or the Ancaster Assizes was 1813? Yeah. Uh, actually, 1814. It was, uh, yeah. By this time, it had been summer, sort of thing. Yeah, and it was a it was a mass trial of I think roughly a dozen. It was 15, eight of eight of whom were sentenced to uh, be hung and drawn and quartered, and there was uh, the rest of them. It was about seven or eight people that were in prison. They were going to be transported or whatever to i don't know probably australia or something like that they never got there anyway they ended up being sick or escape escape from prison or whatever but they all ended up dying and and so on in the in the so meantime they, they, it was felt these uh 15 weren't performing their duties as a uh yeah um, in the in the upper canada province well by this time they'd been discharged from the militia but they had some kind of chip on their shoulder i think i think what happened was the americans took people and they'd parole them and let's say say okay you're going to be out of the war but you're going to have to show us where 
they ended up showing them where the officers were to so they could be paroled or imprisoned. They ended up grabbing supplies off the farms in the area and horses and that kind of stuff. So uh, I think they were that's pretty well what they were guilty of. So they were they were thought to be collaborators. Basically. Collaborators, yes, yeah. Yeah. So, so we haven't even gotten to wargaming yet, but this is this is kind yeah. of fascinating. So, a couple of questions. Uh, you talked about your your ancestors who came from what would now be the United States to Canada, right? And I, I guess the question is kind of a dumb question, but I, I guess for most of the part of Canada we're talking about, which is today modern Ontario and maybe parts of Quebec it's separated from the United States by rivers, right? So either right. the St. Lawrence River or the Niagara River. Yeah. So you can't get, like you have to cross the river to know you're in Canada, basically. Most parts, yeah. Yeah, like you can't just, like I guess there are a few places where you could actually walk across, but I'm trying to imagine where they would be. Oh, parts, parts of Quebec, of course, are still... Yeah, yeah parts yeah. of Quebec, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the story is that um, Adam's... Uh, wife, when she was brought over as a child, she was uh, swum across the river on the backs of uh, cattle, right. sort of thing. <laughs> so, and I and I did some research a long time ago on the British garrison at Fort York, and I know that that one of the things that the British Army struggled with in this period was desertion, right? Because yeah, yeah, a lot of redcoats were very much tempted to like you know get across the river and strike out on further own in the United States, right? Become yeah, that's right. It was very tempting to go yeah. down there, and so my they'd wel- some of the, sometimes they'd welcome them. Actually, there's some instances of uh, British officers going back across the river and seizing their soldiers and dragging them back, and uh, yeah. that kind of uh, you know creating a minor international incident sort of thing. So the, the border is pretty porous, like compared to what it is today. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Yet, well, it was. Um... There's there's very much a sense of of extended family, yeah, in the border regions. Like, uh, was it the Americans referred to Canadians as cousin Jonathan, or did no? We referred to the Americans, Americans. yeah, yeah. We referred to the Americans as cousin Jonathan, yeah. Before that was before Uncle Sam, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was like there's there's trading across the river, and yep. Well, look at the Saint Lawrence. If they'd closed that at any time, they would have choked off Upper Canada, and that would have been the end of the war, right? But there was trading interests that kept it open. They didn't never did take a real serious look at you know closing the. Uh, there was raids and stuff, but they never really took a serious look at uh, closing the river and ending all. How I don't know how serious an effort the Americans would have been able to mount either. Like it always like I I haven't researched the war very deeply, but it always yeah. seemed that they're you know they had really grand ambitions and then they just didn't have the logistic oomph. To make it happen, right? Yeah. Or the leadership at first, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, Queenston Heights and and uh, Detroit. Yep, yep. And maybe uh, one of the things we could talk about um, as we get a bit more into the wargaming side is: is the War of eighteen twelve criminally neglected by wargamers? Because it's like a, I think a lot of people regard it as kind of a sideshow of the Napoleonic Wars, right? I don't a know. lot. Look. A lot of people don't know anything about it, or they know the American version. Even a lot of the English publications depend on the American version, which is heavily tilted. Well, we didn't have that many guys, and they had a lot more guys than we did, and this kind of stuff. That usually kind of tilts that way. 
Um, I find some of the scenarios and so on that uh, there haven't been any really good scenarios written by any Canadians that are talking about the the battles that were here. It's nice because it's all small skirmishes and so on too that you can fight on a table without you know thousands and thousands of soldiers sort of thing. Uh, yeah. The largest battle was largest battle was Lundy's Lane with about you know twenty five hundred on each side I believe it was uh, something like that so it's pretty manageable yeah yeah well I mean and the and the I it was a few years ago I read where the the Americans view the War of eighteen twelve as sort of the second War of Independence so that's why they're all like oh hey we showed those Brits you know we assert we we you know solidified our independence they you know they're not taught that the american war aim was the conquest of of the canadian provinces right so there's that the ostensible causes of the war were sailors rights and uh the articles uh yeah impressive. Uh, in council yeah the uh and, and those the were those were pretty well canceled before the shortly before the war anyway Oh yeah, and they had they had the time to. Okay, this is gone now, but you yeah, know. If the if the if the yeah, if the transatlantic cable had existed at the time, the war wouldn't have happened. Well, even then, they gave them like at the time before Queenston, there was a uh, a ceasefire that uh, Brock was kind of frustrated because he was he wanted to strike back at the Niagara region, but he was held back by Prevost that no, you can't do that. We have to hear if the Americans are going to respond to these orders in council being canceled and this kind of stuff, which mm. led up to October, which, you know, the battle of Queenston Heights and all, all that kind of stuff. Americans were still supplying down there, building up forces and so on. And uh, all of a sudden they're ready and they try to come across. Yeah. But yeah. So the, you know, the Americans, obviously they, they really pushed the, um, was it uh siege of Fort Henry? Is that, is that where the rocket flare uh, comes from? No, not right. No, that's uh, McHenry. Yeah, McHenry. McHenry. Yeah, and, <laughs> and um, you know, and then the, the frigate actions, which the fledgling United States Navy was quite successful in, in right? Individual frigate actions, and then you know that that you know one goal they got in overtime at New Orleans, right? And they go, oh, we won that. We you know we won the whole World Cup, and it's like, well, no, one goal well, in overtime doesn't do it for you guys. Yeah. One of the things I've heard too is well, read that. Uh, the American government made, made a big deal of New Orleans because that took the heat off them for the the rest of the unpopular war that happened. That yeah. all of a sudden here we are, we're we're successful guys, even yeah, though it didn't exactly. matter a damn that things had already been decided. So well, anyway, you know, it's kind of like it's it's kind of like the you know the the handfuls of Victoria Crosses at, at Rourke's Drift, right? Right, right. It gets a, it gets the public's opinion diverted away from this big fiasco it is in Luana. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Forget those three thousand guys, Dad. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, it was just a minor thing. So, uh, Roger, we've kind of like this is kind of a long, long run up through your family history, to, right? Right. To the wargaming thing. So, when we saw you last, which, well, I think I don't know if James has seen you since, but the last time I saw you was um, you were running a, a War of eighteen twelve game at not Broadsword. It was one of the larger. Uh, Lard A's, yeah. Yep. Or uh, what they call it, frozen lard, yeah. Yeah, so is it fair to say that your gaming has been kind of shaped by your personal history? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, certainly the interest has 
actually, I'm a very late bloomer to gaming. I was collecting since the early 60s sort of thing. Um, way back in 1964, my... Older brother and his friend were playing with Airfix Desert uh, Africa Corps and Eighth Army on the floor, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I was like six years old. I wasn't allowed to go near and touch that. But uh, yeah. so I bugged my brother and family for some of these Airfix figures, and my brother got me the Airfix Arabs, which were pretty useless. But we had just seen um, Lawrence of Arabia at the time, so that might have influenced him. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, you just needed the foreign legion then right right uh, yeah so my first airfix plastic kit was a matador in 1969 mm. and I, after that i was you know the matter matador and the 5.5 inch gun i had that kit yeah that was one of my first kits too yeah and um after that of course to me it was coming on strong with their stuff which was still world class even back then it was pretty good stuff i was collecting those into the 70s uh airfix um the 54 millimeter napoleonic figures and that led into hystrix figures and i was trying to search those around different hobby shops because a lot of people hadn't heard of them but this place would have a couple and another place would have maybe two or three sort of thing sorry i'm betraying my ignorance did you say hystrix hysterics 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 they're classic for for just military miniature yeah napoleonics mostly yep right we yeah. had all the marshals and uh, a lot of the troops uh, the old guard and uh, you had to assemble and paint them yourself right yep yep that's yeah, right even the, even the strapping and all that kind of stuff so yeah. about 73 to 76 i was a member of dufferin rifles 1800s which was a reenactment group and we were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the dufferin haldeman rifles being born in the 1870. We had the 1870s uniform, rifle uniform with uh, red facings and uh, Snyder Enfield rifles mm. and that kind of stuff. So we did all the drill and went to a lot of parades. And we'd go to some demonstration things where everybody else was 1812. So they didn't know what to, what to do with us. So they gave us to the, we were the American side usually, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, the Dufferin Rifles were one of the, the militia regiments formed during the or around the time of the Fenian raids. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Immediately afterwards, uh, yeah. early Canadian regiment, 1870. So, um, yeah. yeah. So they missed the Ridgeway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. We can't be blamed for that. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, about this time, my mother and uh, a cousin from the States had come up and they were investigating this family tree stuff. So I was interested in what was going on with that. So after that, I went, went into college. I was at the Canadian Coast Guard College from 76 to 79. Didn't graduate. Played my first and only game of Dungeons and Dragons there. <laughs> uh, kind of a suspect character. After I got out, started working at DeFasco and Hamilton Steel Mill. So I'd working eight hour shifts. I'd get off, uh, afternoons about four o'clock and on the way home i could stop in at hamilton hobby supply on uh, kenilworth and found these figures hinchcliffe figures they're being marketed under the Caldercraft name so they weren't 54 millimeter but they're kind of cool so i started collecting those 25 millimeter and uh, at the time i was working shift work so i'd be home i could sit in front of the tv with a tv table in front of me and 
paint these little figures and stuff and uh, stick them on the wall. What else? Oh yeah, about that time too, I could uh, look looking for other stuff. I'd go up to RAFM in uh, Cambridge to their showroom, and you could uh, purchase various minis and so on from them. Yeah, uh, some interesting stuff. After that, I got involved with uh, model railroad projects with my brother and father. They were starting a model railroad in my dad's basement and kind of a way to get back uh, socializing with the family. I thought, well, I'd help them with some, do some miniature like scenery and that kind of stuff. And after that, I was hooked with uh, model railroad stuff for quite a number of years. Wargaming stuff kind of took a backseat. So I served quite a few executive positions with the National Model Railroad Association locally and uh, in the region sort of thing. Still am active with them. Took an early retirement in 2011 from DeFasco after 32 years of shift work. Mm. And I got the chance to start work at uh, Credit Valley Hobby Shop, doing custom modeling for people, doing electronics, installing all these uh, DCC components and trains and that kind of stuff. And also as a sales associate. So I'd go in a couple of days a week, work in the store, collect up all my projects, bring them home, work on them during the week. Uh, maybe go back and get some parts I needed or something. And then, you know, finish up and take them back sort of thing. So that went on until 2020. We all know about that. Mm. Uh, COVID. Uh, so I was home all of a sudden. Uh, working on my new layout. We'd moved from Brantford. I had quite a large layout there. It was featured in 2018 in uh, John Longhurst's blog, Great Canadian Model Railroads. It was one of the ones that was uh, featured there. So anyway, uh, moved here in 2018, and by 2020, I was ready to start working on a bit of the layout. In the early months of that, I actually started in 2019, in about October, got up a little bit of uh, track and scenery and so on. But by October 2020, I was kind of, I don't know, I guess burned out of model railroading a little bit, working on other people's stuff and so on. So I was ready for a change. But I got out my old collection of Hinchcliffe figures and so on. Okay, what can I do with these? Maybe I can turn them into some money or something. So I went on Facebook and joined some groups to see what they were worth. And all of a sudden, I'm hooked on this other stuff coming out, with like uh, the Perry's stuff with British in- Intervention Force, which is like 1860s, 1870s, uh, yeah. British in Canada and so on. So that was right down my alley all of a sudden. I was really interested in that. Also found all the 1812 stuff out there. Um, so I started collecting that as well. And I sold off some of my odd stuff, but I still got a little bit like the Napoleonics, get rid of someday, but um, I'm more interested in the uh, 1812 and Fenian raids and so on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your your wargaming is specifically War of 1812? And well, not, not, not really. It's uh, since getting in with this bunch of bad bad guys, I've uh, my interests have diverged. Um, yeah, that'll happen, yeah. At um, Hot Lead, I played... Uh, Thomas Sarrow's uh, chain of command game. Yes. And I found out he was nearby here in Port Dover. So uh, I'm playing games with him. Uh, he's teaching me chain of command and I'm, he's coming over here and I'm teaching him sharp practice uh, 
Sounds like a good good exchange. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, plus, now I've got in with a bunch of other guys here. Um, Bar- uh, Dan Scott, Barnaby Jones, Thomas Saro, Steve MacArthur, and Tim King. So we do uh, oh, yeah. kind of an outgrowth of, the, uh, outgrowth of the outgrowth of the Hamilton group. Uh, yeah. that Tim, meets Tim King does, does great games. Yep. Meeting regularly now every couple of weeks or so. And nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good uh, gaming scene down there, and you're you're well equipped with um, hobby stores, right? Because yep. you've got uh, Dundas Valley Hobby, and yep. uh, as well as James, what's the name of the store you and I went to? Was that Hamilton Hobby Specialties? Yeah, or Hamilton Hobby Center, or something like that. Yeah, it's on Kenilworth, right up from the Riley Veterans Hall. Right. Yeah, so you're you're kind of well served there, Hamilton. Yeah, Testimonies has moved down uh, the yes. mountain too. They're down on uh, yeah. Parkdale, so all those good, all those are good places. There's also um, Night uh, Black Knight Games up on uh, Mohawk and Upper Ottawa. They're more, they're not too historical. They're mostly uh, fantasy and whatever else. Uh, yeah, they're a little more. They're a lot more mainstream. Right. Yep. You asked me if I'm a Canadian war gamer. Yeah, yeah. I am. We've asked a few of our guests: Are you a war gamer who just happens to be a Canadian, or are you are you a Canadian war gamer that you're specifically interested in Canadian stuff? And I, it sounds to me like the latter. Yeah. Yeah. So chain of command stuff I'm collecting right now is uh, basically oriented toward Canadian stuff. Uh, Italy, Sicily, good uh, campaign. Well, not Normandy, especially uh, trying the the pint size campaign, closing the gap at Fillets Gap. Oh yeah, collecting stuff for that. Uh, so I'm getting some, of course, some German opponent stuff too. You got to collect both sides, right? Yeah. So Falsham Jaggers and that kind of stuff. Ortona, I love the AB uh, uh, twenty millimeter figures, beautiful detailing and so on. Mm-hmm. The ones for Italy will also maybe do for Hong Kong as well. Tropical kind of wear, uh, you know, short sleeve or shirts rolled up, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, it might some yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's where I well also um with these guys I'm also of course interested in the Fenian raids, been getting into cruel seas and been reading of course that's uh torpedo boat action, MTBs and that kind of stuff. So I've been reading about Canadians in the Adriatic and the Med with all their pirating adventures and also in the in the channel as well so collecting some of that kind of stuff too that's that's going to be a a totally unknown well not a totally unknown but because obviously you know about it but the the idea of canadians in the med and the adriatic that sounds absolutely fascinating yeah Yeah, the focus is so much like in the royal canadian navy you know history public affairs stuff that they put out there the focus is so much on the battle of the atlantic yeah Yeah. you know which was important but well yeah yeah. And I know there were there were Canadians on uh, like motor torpedo gunboats in the Channel. Yep. Oh, wow, that's interesting. These yeah. these um, there was several captains, uh, Canadian captains actually, in the they started out in the Med with the invasion of Sicily and then went up you know the the coast of Italy and then they switched over to the Adriatic and they were helping the Yugoslav partisans and uh, right capturing actually they went out and started capturing these uh, boats were trying to sneak through and uh, so it's real uh, pirate action going on with these guys it's uh, really interesting to read mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah that's fascinating yeah let's see the war gaming scene um, around here well okay so after 2020 
all of a sudden I'm collecting all these figures. I've never played a game in my life sort of thing. Oh, really? Uh, collecting everything had tons of rules and so on way back to the uh, 70s and so on, but never played it, had, had any opponents. So uh, my first game was at KegsCon in September 2021. Oh. I played uh, Blucher with uh, Keith Burnett was uh, the host there. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, uh, I was in a Zoom Zoom meetings with uh, the London group, the uh, what they call themselves, the Hamilton Road, uh, yeah, war uh, yeah. gamers. So they, company. Yep. Yeah. They're all mad as hatters, but they're nice guys. Yep, yep. So they because there's John's wife too, right? Yeah. One thing they told me was that uh, well, if you go to these places, you you want to play a War of 1812 game, you're not going to find one, you know. So, okay, well, how do I make that happen is I guess I have to take it myself, right? So yeah. uh, that's where I started uh, hosting games. And even though, you know, trying to learn the sharp practice rules that myself and so on, which is a little bit uh, intimidating, but hmm. luckily we usually have somebody there that knows uh, a little bit of what's going on. They can correct me when I go wrong, hopefully, but we're getting better. And actually my wargaming group, they're they're going to, we're kind of, concentrating now on heavy sharp practice so we get really good at the rules and we can get all the nuances and stuff of the characters and the campaigns and everything else uh yeah. hopefully going there as well yeah so that's our plan anyway yeah that's right. a good plan yeah james and i were the last time we were together we we were talking about what a great rule set sharp practice is it's incredibly versatile and, you know, it just for modeling a small horse and musket action, it, it's, yeah, it's amazing. And it, it delivers a really good game. Yeah. I'm curious, Roger, how you think are doing War of 1812 stuff. How do you model, uh, how do you rate the different troop types? Like British regulars, I'm guessing, would be sort of generally pretty competent, but yeah, how, they're pretty good. How variable would the Canadian militia or the Americans be, for example? The Canadian militia, like by Queenston Heights, they were getting pretty good. They'd been drilled for a while. They'd done, you know, some of them had gone down to Detroit and so on. So they were becoming a force to be reckoned with. Later on in the war, they were very reliable uh, light troops, uh, skirmishing and so on. They actually were formed into what they called the light division or the light brigade of the, of the, this was the left division over here uh, in Niagara. So they were uh, part of that, but there was also, um, so there's the flank company, which is the guys that are kept under arms and they're drilled a little bit. There's the sedentary guys, which is everybody and their brother, you know, between the ages of 16 and 65, who are called out in time of need to transport stuff or whatever. They don't do too much fighting, so they're kind of mid-range. And then there's the incorporated militia, which uh, came about in 1813 and they collected some of these flank guys together and they trained them more so they fought in the big battles in the line like lundy's lane and so on uh so they were getting pretty efficient by the end of the war there's also all the defensible regiments guys like that's, that's one of the things about canadians in the war of 1812 we had a lot of guys who were had been uh, with the 60th rifles in uh, Spain and so on. Ooh. So these guys were uh, very efficient trainers of men in light infantry tactics. So guys like the guy at um, 
Shadow Gay, uh, Marquis de, I forget what his last name is. It's a, about a million barrels. One I didn't write down here, but also um, Red George McDonald. He was with the, the Glengarry Light Infantry. There's Canadian Voltageurs, which were another, they're trained rifles because they had the short uh, musket, light infantry musket, which they were very accurate with. Mm-hmm. They had a foresight on them. Because they didn't, it was mostly, I think it was a problem of uh, ammunition distribution. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to have to worry about getting the different size for the Baker rifle than there were the, the Brown Best Musket. But, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. So anyway, by the end of the war, we had some pretty pretty good uh, troops under the Canadian banner here. So Yeah, and the, the fascinating thing about that war too is that it's not just guys who've served in the British Army, but you've actually got some of Napoleon's veterans running around, right? So right. Um, early on in the these podcasts, I did a sidebar conversation with a British guy called Alistair Nichols who wrote a book on the, the Wattville Regiment called uh, Wellington Switzers. Right. This was one of those foreign regiments that the British regularly recruited, and it was mostly German and Swiss guys, many of whom had either deserted from napoleon's army or who had deserted, uh, been captured right and they were yep. kind of reuniformed and and fought all over the place all over the empire and so and, and a lot of teams you know they got a lot of credit from their contemporaries they're from the canadian and british guys for like being excellent foragers and like they could cook up a savory meal with herbs while other guys were just like frying bacon and cooking dough on ramrods right right yeah so you have all these people who who have been, you know, for whom the Napoleonic Wars has been going on for quite a while, suddenly running around Upper Canada. It's fascinating. Well, you had all the uh, German troops as well that, you know, might have been captured from Napoleon's allies. And what do we do with these guys? You're going to, a lot of them got stuck in the 60th rifles and so on. Yeah. Uh, it was largely a German unit. And like you say, De Wattville and so on. Uh, so you can sit in the Hulk in Britain, you know, rotting away, or you can, you know, come and fight for us sort of thing. You won't fight against your people. You'll be over here in, in North America fighting against the Americans. So, yeah. yeah. And as far as they're concerned, it's like, well, hey. yeah, yeah. they avoided Russia. Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so good on them. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of them ended up here too. Yeah. Yeah. So, Roger, for um, a couple of questions for somebody who was like, you know, I really would like to know more about the War of eighteen twelve, and I'd like to, I'd like to game it. Yep. What would your advice be? What scales, like, what rules would you focus on? Skirmish uh, games in bigger scales, or would you try to do some smaller, like some of the larger battles in smaller scales, like Chrysler's Farm? Or yeah, I've been trying to puzzle out how to fight Chrysler's Farm because there's so much happening. It's a kind of a spread out battlefield with all these hordes of Americans coming on the field and against thin red line. But um, I don't know if uh, General Dar- uh, General de Brigade would uh, address those type of rules. People have said that they have a, a little bit in about uh, using uh, First, First Nations sort of thing. Hmm. I don't know whether it would be that or fight the Battle of Chrysler's Farm in, in more than one scenario because you've got the advance guard under uh, Pearson. He has some of Canadian voltagers. He has uh, Canadian fensibles. He has the light, uh, the, both the flank companies of the 49th regiment and uh, a field gun 
and they're kind of along the road sort of thing near the river. In the river, there's a gunboat with a 24-pounder, which is firing at the Americans who are trying to shoot the Long Sioux Rapids. They're firing at these uh, boats and so on that are trying to, oh. to shoot the rapids downstream from uh, Chrysler's farm. Of course, all that's underwater now because when they built the St. Lawrence Seaway, they dammed it up and got rid of those rapids. That's where the Iroquois Dam is and so on, the big dams there. So uh, Chrysler's farm is underwater now. Hmm. Uh, not able to visit it, but uh, they yeah. got a memorial nearby at uh, the Lost Battle. Upper Canada Village. Yeah, yeah. You could, um, yeah, you could break it down into a like a pint-sized campaign. Yeah. yeah, but we got we got that going on on the one hand. On the other hand, there's uh, the 49th and the 89th uh, in line, and some Indians and so on, and more more Canadian voltageurs skirmishing. So they're holding the the main field. Well, the uh, Americans come out of the trees. And the 89th very smartly advanced. They pulled one flank back, refused the flank, they called it, and just pour the musket fire into the Americans coming through the trees. And the Americans never have a chance to form up and do anything. They're trying to pop off at long distance and using up all their am- ammo. So they're running out of ammo and they have to retreat back to the boats to get more and they never repair back on the field. So. That's more or less the way the uh, the battle went. But meanwhile, down near the St. Lawrence, there's the cavalry charge. The U.S. 2nd Dragoons try to charge the line, and they're driven off. And then one of the units of the 89th are, are sent ahead to carry uh, capture some American guns, which are bogged down in this quagmire between the the forest and the, the British line sort of thing. And they, ca- they end up capturing one gun anyway, but uh, quite interesting the way the battle goes. So, Is it Chrysler's farm or is it Lundy's Lane that I'm thinking of, which which went all day and into the night and was remarkably bloody? Is that Lundy's that, Lane? That was Lundy's Lane, yeah. yeah. They lost the artillery up on the hill. Yeah, uh, The Americans took that and then they tried to charge it throughout the night uh, trying to get back and they didn't know who they're firing at, whether it's friend or foe or whatever. So it was quite bloody. Yeah. Winfield Scott's brigade kind of stood down below and they got decimated by these guns early on. And they kind of got the the hell shot out of them. They tried to advance through the night and ended up getting shot up again. And that was the end of Winfield Scott because he was so badly wounded. He didn't really take part in the rest of the rest of the war. So. Winfield Scott shows up again in history in, in 1860, right? He's the yep. he's the Anaconda the plan. First commander <laughs> of the Union Armies, and he's like 80, 80 years old and yep. 400 pounds. Well, he, he uh, made his name, too, in the uh, Mexican War, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were yeah. a whole generation, yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually, while we're talking, I'm just, there was something that was tickling my mind about uh, wargaming resources, and I remembered that the late Mike Hobbs wrote a a, a book on uh, sharp practice in the War of 1812. Have you looked at that? Yeah, that's uh, I've used several scenarios out of that. One was the Battle of Frenchtown. I think that James actually uh, got to partake in that one. Yeah. That was in snow and so on with my snow mat and so on. Yeah, oh, yeah um, that was a great looking game. That was where the, the Americans were all getting massacred by Indians towards the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, if it worked out right. 
they yeah. Indians were handled right. Yeah. There's also this one we played this last week is Queenstown, Queenston. That was the battle in the lower part of the town Ooh, yeah. uh, where the Americans are landing and they're trying to advance towards the town. The, the British are slowly coming on. They have their flank companies in, in the town because that's where they were uh, stationed. But the militia comes out, tries to reinforce, and eventually we get more British out and a, a light gun sort of thing. But uh, didn't go so well for the Canadians and British uh, during our, our scenario here. Hmm. The next one will be on the Heights itself, Brock's Charge. See how that does. And then uh, possibly the end with uh, Shafe's Battle as well. Okay. So those are from uh, those are from Mike Mike Hobbs. Uh, book. Uh, the the other game I played, uh, Cook's Mill. Yeah, we did Cook's Mill. Yeah, was that from, from was that from Mike Hobbs's scenario? That was um, another else. one. I've got a couple here that are uh, one is Stuart Asquith from he's uh, British wrote a lot for uh, military modeling and so on. Yeah, Britain. So his uh, yeah we. We kind of adapted that part of that and part of this other one that's recently come out from the States. I should know the name of the thing because uh, he's got a lot of my pictures of my models in the book. So oh, you, have, yeah. you have nice, you have a nice collection. Yeah. Thanks. Having handled it. Yeah. Yeah. Close. Yeah. Made with the toys. Yeah. yeah. So that's another scenario book. Bad Roads and Poor Rations by Adrian Manzi. Manzi. Okay. Uh, so he's uh, American, so he has kind of a... That's all War 1812. Yep. Scenarios and so on. There's quite a few. He splits it up into the different regions and so on. Oh. Uh, so it's pretty good. It's rules agnostic? Yes, it is. Yeah. Hmm. So we have to adapt sharp practice rules and so on to try to fit that, which maybe with that one, it didn't work out so well. I know you had fun with the rockets, but... Uh... Eh, you know what? Like... Uh... I, you know, my side won, so I, yep. was, I think, did, did, do I recall that the next time you ran it, the Americans won? Yeah, I think so. The, I mean, if you have a win on both sides and it's, it's a balanced scenario, just how you, you know, how right. you play it. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I kind of think sharp practice is perfect for War of 1812. Right. Now, if sharp practice had been out when I was younger and more interested in doing War of 1812, I probably would have jumped into it. But, you know, it wasn't, so I didn't. And I've decided I like Bavarian and Austrian helmets and cavalry. Sure. Have, so. Yep, yep. Well, you can always come and play with my stuff, so. Well, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Because um, um, I, I find, like, a lot of a lot of skirmish, game, you know, skirmish games, yeah, like, they get really small scale. You know, yeah. you've got, like, 12 guys in the woods, and, you know, you're running around sniping at each other. Which to me isn't, I don't know, doesn't, it just doesn't do it for me. Trouble is, uh, with um, sharp practice, it's usually kind of a two player game. We bring it to the, you know, the conventions and stuff. We try to make enough to have four people play to maximize sort of thing. So sometimes the people are a little bit underemployed, maybe, but. Uh, yeah, and I, I have to keep catching myself because I find in, in those sorts of games, I, t- I, start, I start getting kind of bossy. And I want, oh, we should do this. You know, and if the other player is more passive, then it's like, well, I'm just kind of doing everything. And I, I have to say, wait a minute, you, you need to play too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give <laughs> me those cards. I can use those cards. You can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So again, Roger, just for 
the benefit of somebody listening to this podcast who says, holy crap, I should do War of 1812. Mm-hmm. British figures are like, like I'm talking about, I'm thinking my question is, has to do with where you get the figures from, who makes figures. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm using mostly plastic Perry and Warlord uh, Peninsular stuff for my British. Okay. Uh, once you get into the specialist stuff, I've got some War Games Atlantic riflemen that I'm using for my uh, like 95th rifles that I'm using for my Glengarry uh, Light Infantry, same uniform and everything, yeah. just that they were armed with muskets rather than rifles. Uh, so all that stuff is fairly cheap. I've got some Perry Light Dragoons for my uh, Provincial Dragoons and the also some of the 19th Light Dragoons, which were in Upper Canada. Uh, from about 1813 on. Uh, other than that, I've got uh, Brigade Games has uh, beautiful models, uh, mostly later war stuff, sculpted by Paul Hicks, which I love his yeah. uh, love his figures. There's also Knuckle Duster. They've been out for a while longer. They have a bigger range. They have stuff from early in the war, right through to the end of the war. They have a lot more cavalry and... Uh, artillery and that sort of thing. That's 15 mil, isn't it, for knuckle dust? No, no, this is all 20, 28 mil. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All 28, yeah. It's actually one of those periods where you really could get away with doing it all in 28. Oh, yeah. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Um, Unless you just want, you know, say bigger companies and, you know, more elbow room. Like, why bother with 10 millimeter or 15 millimeter? Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you come to the Americans, there's, there's no available. American plastics in the same quality as uh, Perry's and Warlords. Yeah. I have been looking at the Portuguese. They have that tall Baratera. Is it uh, Shaco adapting them? But uh, it's going to be quite a work, bit of work scraping off all the extra plaques and stuff to turn them into Americans. They're, I think it's doable, but whether I want to invest the time or just buy metal. Yeah, buy metal because my time's worth money as well, right? Yeah. Sure. And yeah. have you looked at the like the old glory war of 1812 line is is pretty nice. It's what yeah. it's you know, I know like Old Glory has a huge catalog and some of their lines are better than others. Mm-hmm. War of 1812 stuff is one of their better lines I've right. found, like from looking at it. Uh, yep. Um the sculpting's better, the poses are better. So Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't bought any of those, but uh, I mean the shipping from the states is terrible. But, yeah. Well, Whatever it's, you know, I, okay, I, I got a project I want to do next month. I better order it now, then I'll get it in. But you pay a little bit more. And sometimes it helps if you have a post office in the States, but uh, we'll see. It looks like Old Glory does uh, 1812 in both 25, 28, and uh, 15s. Mm. The other thing, too, I guess, is if you really want to do naval gaming, you know, there's all sorts of options, right? You've got, James was talking about the frigate actions, but there's also stuff on the Great Lakes, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really cool stuff on the Great Lakes. With, you know, the biggest, you know, your biggest ship is a twenty-gun sloop. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the Black Seas or whatever would be very adaptable. Oh, right. That. Yeah, Battle of Lake Lake Erie or whatever. So I'm I'm interested in the stuff up north too, uh, Mackinac and so on. I've got uh, I've got some bateaus and. Uh, some canoes and Indians and that sort of thing to, uh, I don't know if there was much of a, a battle. They just kind of surrounded them and said, uh, oh, by the way, there's a war on, give up. 
So they did. <laughs> well, the, you the, know. Later, the later battle, when the Americans came back up and tried to take the island back and they were driven off, and then the British got into the, the bateaus with the fur traders and so on, and they went and they took the two schooners. First, they took the uh, one, I forget what it was called, but they changed the name to Surprise. The other one was the Tiger uh, around, uh, you know, Manitouan Island and that sort of thing. So those are interesting actions as was well. That, was one of those the Nancy? Nancy was uh, some of the crew that they were, that was a fur trader boat that wasn't involved in the Battle of Lake Erie, uh, put in bay. Uh, it had running supplies to Mackinac in oh, the meantime. Okay. So they they kind of got surrounded near Georgian Bay. Yeah, so it's so at Wasega Beach now. There's Wasega Beach, yeah, where the, the hull is. They burnt the, burnt the ship and they the British put up a a log uh, bunker sort of thing with the gun in it to hold the Americans off, and yeah, that was about it. And you know, when you think about it, you know, these guys fighting in these, you know, like like they were really fighting at the ends of the earth. Yeah, you know, I mean, now we we go there. It's a bit, you know, I can drive a couple of you know for a couple hours, and oh look, I'm you know, lovely tourist spot, and take some pictures and eat at a restaurant. And the, for these guys, like they they were. They're at the end of the world. They're they're in outer space. Oh sure, it, there's there's a there's a place. Uh, well, not far from where I am because I'm up on Georgian Bay. You know the and Roger, I'm sure you know about this. The portage route that went from modern Barry all the way up to Georgian Bay, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's one section of it north of Barry, the the nine mile portage, where they're and I've I've hiked it, uh, where they're hauling these freaking bateaus, which are like giant giant canoes. Yeah ungainly beasts and they're their supplies hauling, they're hauling these things up and down hills and uh, they eventually get to the Nottawasaga river and then from there you can paddle up to modern day wasaga beach but that's brutal and you know if you go hiking in those woods when uh, the mosquitoes and black flies are out it's it's unpleasant and uh, so you can just get in your car and, and you know say that's screw it i'm going to go home um, but not these guys <laughs> like the winter of 1814-1815, the British were starting to develop another shipbuilding port at Penetanguishene. That's right, yeah. And uh, I've read uh, Tiger Dunlop's book about the War of 1812. It's really f interesting because he's a surgeon of the 89th, but he, he visits uh, the Chryslers at the farm. He's a surgeon, so they set up the hospital there and so on, but but later on in the war, he's up at the end of the war, January, February, 1815. He's one of the guys that's helping to cut this road to put through to Penetanguishene to mm -hmm. develop this new naval base up there. And of course, the, the war ends, they get word of it. They just drop their tools and take off back home. Yeah. Sort of. yeah, there, there's not ever been up there. Uh, it's an interesting place to visit where they, uh, the new museum there with the, they're building the, the ships and so on. Yeah, um, tall ships. Yep. Yeah, the, the the tall ships are unfortunately kind of unconvincing when you look at them up close. There, right. But uh, they're you know they it is an interesting site. It's an interesting place to go for uh, for the day. And and we took my uh, my brother and his wife from BC up there, and then we we combined that with a trip to the Martyr Shrine, right in Midland. So you get a little bit of Canadian history from a couple of centuries. But yeah, but you know the fact that you could you know send some guys with with basic carpentry tools and say go to this remote you know shoreline surrounded by trees and start making warships 
Yeah, yeah. You know, like, and and yet in what I guess fifty years after that, that's not going to happen. We, we got we have steam engines that need coal. We have you know iron hulls now. Like, there's all this other infrastructure. You can't just you know make a boat, make a ship on a beach, and then push it into the water. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, at at, at uh, Discovery Harbor in Penetang, at Penetang Machine, there's they they show you they have a little working forge and so they show you yeah this is how we made the the nails and stuff that we the hardware that we need to put the ships together and then there's one of these pits where you know you've got a a, a saw that four or five guys are moving up and down oh yeah and the the pit is such that the saw can go <clears throat> up and down and, and cross cut a, a beam you know or turn a log into beams which you could you can then use to build ships but yeah it's pretty crude technology but as james said it's really all you need it right yeah you need you need some guy who knows how to make ropes yep and then you probably need to drag up like a small cannon or two and some powder and shot but that's about it right yeah i i was interested in seeing the cost of getting a canada or a cannon to the upper lakes it was something like seven thousand dollars back in that that those days, yeah. which, you know, was big money. Counting inflation now, that would be like hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? To to get yeah. it there, yeah. Uh, so you know, getting getting the guns to even to Lake Ontario was a real task. Even further, if they were getting them up to Lake Erie, you know, that was the cause of the uh, losing it. Put in Bay, they couldn't get the the guns that because the Americans had captured York. They just uh, captured all their carronades that they had in storage that were meant for the, the Lake Erie fleet. They burned all their ropes and cordage and so on. So all that stuff was destroyed. They had to make do with whatever they could collect at um, you know Detroit River and Amherstburg. So they you know stripped the, the fort of most of its guns to outfit the new ship Detroit. So they had all these guns of different calibers on the on the boat. They were meant to serve, and they were actually doing pretty good until they, the two ships, uh, two British ships, collided and got entangled. Uh, it's gonna uh, mess, yeah. Anyway, yep. Oops. Yeah. Yep. As we sort of wrap up here, I, I was thinking of a podcast I was listening to a couple of days ago by uh, some American guys. Uh, anything but a one, James. We had Tom Castanios on. Uh, yes. On that podcast, we were talking about Napoleonic rules and. Uh, one of the questions they were asking was, how do you choose your armies, right? It's like, they've always got a really interesting basic question for their podcast. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking of was, well, if you're a Canadian, the answer to that is probably pretty easy, right? Because we we come from a small country and we're we're really proud of our military heritage, which very few other, you know, few other people seem to know about. So right. the War of 1812 strikes me as, like, I'm kind of ashamed I've never actually done anything or of yeah, but you've got stuff for the Fenian raids. That's very niche. Well, that's true. And yeah, Roger, my you were talking about the Perry figures earlier, their British intervention force. I just yep. I just painted my fourth foot regiment and uh, working on some more because I, I have an interest in like an, a what if American Civil War thing where the Trent affair goes badly. It leads to war. The British send troops. And in my little campaign that I have in my head right now, the American uh, Army of the Potomac sends... Um, a core north to invade the Niagara Peninsula mm. could be interesting. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't know. I it would be a scenario, but there's something about the basic premise of 
supporting the Confederacy <laughs> during that. Uh, I can know. see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like the Fenians better because they're kind of a nondescript sort of thing. You can get a bunch of Confederate and Union figures together. Those are the Fenians and, you know, you got your British uh, yeah, you give them an and so on and away you, you go. An, an Aaron go bra harp banner and, and, right. you know, and they go try and poke, poke the British in the nose. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's just, it, it is just such a crazy war, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's all those other little actions, too, like the rebellion of 1838, you know, the Mackenzie Rebellion and so on. Hmm. And uh, there's all those bar fight. There's all those hunter. There's like a bunch of American drunken Americans that were trying to invade Canada. There was the Battle of the Windmill at Prescott and so on, which, uh, again, this John Pliny Chrysler by that time. 1830s uh, he was colonel of the dundas militia regiment then instead of a captain very good uh, so he was involved with that a little bit his well, i think one of his sons was wounded during that but th those are other little skirmish type battles and that sort of thing i think one of those americans came across and tried to take uh, Peely island uh they invaded that and uh i don't know whether they just went home because nobody was interested or whether the <laughs> British uh, fought them off from uh, Amherstburg, but uh, people say that uh, Canadian history is so boring, but there's a lot of interesting stuff out there that we're not taught that you have to, you know, you have to dig up to find all this good stuff and it's just not talked about. So uh, one of the things we ask our guests is if you have a, a book or two or three that you care to donate virtually to our virtual Canadian Wargamer podcast library. Yes, I do. Okay, uh, the first one is a novel. It's called The Bloody Boy by Douglas Thomas. Uh, Keltoy Publishing, 2001. Ooh. And it involves the soldier of the 49th uh, Foot Light Company. So he's involved in Queenston Heights, York, Stony Creek, Beaver Dams, Bloody Boys is uh, under Fitzgibbons. They were these mounted uh, soldiers mounted on horses to try to uh, oppose the so-called Canadian volunteers under the notorious Canadian uh, trader whose name escapes me right at the moment. But uh, And they, they ended up at Chrysler's Farm. So it's a very good novel that takes you back into that time and involves you in all these places. And for... Uh, the type of book it is, it's very readable and very interesting. So I recommend that. The Bloody Boy. Uh, the Thomas. next one. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Doug, Doug Thomas. The next one is uh, Field of Glory by Donald E. Graves, Robin Brass Studios. And it is involves uh, Battle of Shadow Gay and Chrysler's Farm. A very good breakdown of the battle and uh, all the stuff leading up to it, all that stuff in the fall the americans uh they originally they were going to take kingston then they thought well maybe kingston's too strong we'll go down down river and take montreal so that's a pretty good one another one is seeing my investigations into the politics and so on of the war of 1812 this one's called the civil war of 1812 Subtitle, American Citizens, British Subjects, Irish Rebels, and Indian Allies by Alan Taylor, Vintage Books, 2010. And this is more or less like late loyalists were here. They weren't really sure of their loyalties and so on. So loyal 
Some just came for the land. They were invested in American politics, maybe, or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so it involves all that kind of discussions. We're pretty good that way. Uh, so I'm going to sneak another couple in here oh, just please. very quickly. Uh, those that are interested in Napoleonic stuff, my two favorites is The Gun, and the other one is Death to the French, now more politically uh, correctly retitled Rifleman Dodd. Both of those are by C.S. Forrester. Forrester. Yes. They're both uh, Peninsular things. The Gun has been made into a movie with a bad movie with Cary Grant, Sophia Loren, Frank Sinatra. It's oh, it sounds like a sounds like a worth a bowl of popcorn at least. Oh, it's it yeah, it's great. It's a huge gun that the Spanish have left after a losing a battle. They pitch it down in a, a gully sort of thing. Spanish uh, partisans after the war they find this gun, they have it repaired. They're going to take it on the road, so they gather people from all over, you know, everybody in their cat and dog and everything else, and uh, they proceed to knock hell out of the French army and different garrisons and so on, because all of a sudden now they have this big siege gun that they can do things with. So that's a very interesting book. Rifleman, Rifleman Dodd, it's at the time of the lines at uh, Taurus Vedras. Mm -hmm. uh, Rifleman Dodd is left behind. And he's, again, with uh, Portuguese partisans, but he's making life hell for the French that are trying to build a, a pontoon bridge across the, the river there. Uh, so that's a very, very readable book. Yeah, C.S. Forrester is a good read. Yep. So those are those are five books there. But, okay, uh, great. And I noted, too, uh, that uh, Bad Roads and Poor Rations appears to be still for sale. I don't know if it's in print. but Yeah, it's very new. So uh, just came out last year. Okay, um, that's cool. Yeah, I got one of the first copies. So the the good news is that if you want to do the War of eighteen twelve, there's some reading out there. Yep. And there's some figures, and there's uh, it's like a tailor made for sharp practice. So, yeah. well, I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Oh, we just handed we've just handed our our listeners in Podland a, a nice turnkey um, project. If you want to try it out, just come out to one of our game nights, and uh, hopefully. Or one of our hot lead or whatever, and uh, yeah. we'll have a game, and you can play or watch or whatever, and see how much fun we're having, especially with the rockets. Yeah. <laughs> so the while rockets. we were while we were talking about the Fenian raids, I had to remind myself one of my favorite cartoonists is a Canadian uh, cartoonist called Kate Beaton. Do you guys know about her? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Well, her she did a, a really great one called "The Invasion of Canada" about the Fenian raids, where these. Um, farmer and his, his wife look out their window and see all these guys in their in their yard and he says who are you guys we're, we're americans irish americans and we're going to free ireland from tyranny the farmer says that's cool man this is for sure ontario though and not ireland i know that <laughs> storming the palace is a nice idea but england is far away isn't it who would suspect irishmen coming from buffalo to take canada hostage in exchange for ireland and the farmer goes yeah probably no one ever but like Canada is gigantic, no offense. And like England forgets we're here sometimes. I, I feel like there's a lot of holes in this plan. No, this plan makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when the farm wife says, if any of you burn my house down for Ireland, I'm going to be upset. And then the last panel is uh, some guy telling the president, would that be Van Buren? I can't remember who that was. Anyway, yeah, Mr. President, our men are invading Canada right now. Good Lord. What for? To free Ireland. To free Ireland. 
huh, I feel like there's a lot of holes in that plan. So, <laughs> anyway, I'll put that on our Facebook page because it's pretty funny. Yeah. Very good. All right. Roger, thanks so much. Uh, we look forward to, uh, are you going to be doing anything at Hot Lead? I hope to, yeah. I, uh, I, I haven't put my plan in yet, but uh, consider yourself notified. I'll, I'll put something together and uh, yes. play, play it a couple times anyway. So I, I had, had fun I'll, last year. Send me an email and I'll put it on the website and book you a table. Good. Uh, Very good. If you are running a, an 1812 game uh, and it's on, on Sunday, I'll probably be there. Okay. So. Very good. Yep. All right. Okay. Yep. All right, Roger. Thanks so much. Uh, did you have a um, piece of Canadian military music that you wanted us to use in our, our playout? Well, the closest I have is when we had the Dufferin rifles, we had a fellow that was uh, ex 8th Army. He was uh, fairly elderly. But we would play uh, Lily Marlene for him, uh, so that would upset the old ladies at the Legion. But uh, because that was a German song, but it was an Eighth Army song, so everybody's uh, everybody's saying it. Yeah, okay. that would be a my choice, I guess, because I don't really have a Coast Guard didn't have a regiment, so regimental song or anything uh, well, other Vera, than Vera Lynn saying it. Yeah, not the voltageurs. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll do that for your uh, for your friend for your comrade. Okay. All right. Thanks, Roger, so much. Okay. You know, wow. You know, most of us are sort of like, oh, you know, it's cool. I've, you know, my ancestors came from there or whatever. But this is like, no, he can trace the family tree. Yeah. yeah. An ancestor owned the farm that a battle is named after. Like, mm -hmm. wow. That's 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 pretty deep Canadian roots. It is for sure. And well, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure my ancestors got off a steamship. Yeah. You know, we came, we came middle of the 19th century, you know. Um, okay. Maybe not a steamship, but yeah. Yeah. My, and my ancestors came over to Canada in the early 1900s, I think. So there you go. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. So here we are at the Canadian Content Corner, and with us tonight, we we have Canadian content. And that's, that's just not me and James. We have one half of uh, Canadian uh, manufacturer and reseller, Six Squared, that one half being Kevin Jacoby. I want to call you Derek Jacoby. But Derek Jacoby is somebody quite different. So uh, he's an actor. Yeah, I'm just Kevin Jacoby. No worries. <laughs> oh, Jacoby. Okay. All right. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing quite well, guys. Very good to see you both. Yeah, we're really, really happy that you uh, you made time for uh, a modest little um, podcast that heart still pumps with uh, maple syrup. So thank you for thank you for that. You're one of the stories we want to tell about the um, uh, Canadian hobby industry, such as it is. So. 
tell us about yourself. Tell us uh, who you and your partner Brad are and uh, who you are as gamers and tell us about Six Squared. Oh, for sure. Well, uh, Brad and I have been friends for over 20 years now. Uh, myself, I grew up in gaming. Uh, I was one of those nerdy kids uh, who was in the enrichment programs up here in Canada, which means we never took traditional classes, but we got to play D&D and got marked on it. So it was What? Cool. Dude. Uh, oh, yeah. I, didn't I was enrichment. We didn't get to do that. We had enrichment thing. I wasn't allowed. We didn't have geography or history. We had uh, modules we had to do, and we had a schedule thing for being able to do D&D because it was creative output. So it worked out pretty well. Uh, yeah. I went to the wrong school. We're going to high school in British Columbia. All we did is smoke weed, but we did play Dungeons and Dragons. Actually, no, for in grade seven or grade eight social studies, I made a war game about some incident in Canadian history with, yeah, yeah, uh, Courier Dubois holding a fort being attacked by Indians. One of my modules I did was we read the James Clavell Shogun in grade seven. And I made up a game in that for made a huge map and had people have to play the diplomacy of it. The only thing I did wrong was I, I made my own coinage. I made it out of uh, back at the time I made it out of dough. So, you know, how you make the salt play-doh thing with the flour, water and salt. It worked out really. I painted them all gold. It looked awesome until three weeks after we got back from March break and came back and the entire thing was all moldy. <laughs> but other than I still got an A on the project though, it went pretty well. Mr. Provino was an awesome teacher. Uh, so yeah, I've been gaming for a long time. I, I love the nooks and crannies of our hobby. Um, and uh, we would go, we love playing games like creating worlds on the tabletop. So I'm interested, it's always been a passion as well as role playing games. And Brian and I would go to conventions and we would run games uh, for. Uh, just for fun or for companies that asked us to get it done as we got a little more known and people always wanted to buy our train. So we taught ourselves to say, Hey, why don't we make a company on this? We taught ourselves how to uh, make molds so we can make uh, mass produce uh, our, our materials instead of doing uh, one off scratch builds. And uh, that happened 12 years ago. Our very first convention of course was hot lead stating content. That was our first one. And I remember our first uh, our first uh, person who bought something. His name was David. He's still a good friend uh, from the London area. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we bought ourselves a laser uh, machine, uh, a CO2 laser, started doing bases and uh, acrylic tokens and the likes. Uh, we moved from resin over to also 3D printing, Uh and then we're now today where we actually have like a 6,400 square foot store here in St. Catharines. Wow. That's Ontario, eh? For those mm -hmm. of you who are not in the area. Yeah, so uh, always loved it. We, we, we just want to support uh, the games. And there's a lot of benefits besides just having a good time with your friends and family. And that's what's the main focus for us. Yeah. So is, is uh, at any point, was this a, a day job or was it just a, a hobby that you sort of dedicated more and more time to? Uh, it's more the latter. Uh, so it's always was one of those things where it was just a hobby company, uh, mm -hmm. no pun intended, where, where we just uh, did this thing. If it did well, great. If it didn't do well, oh, well, we'll just throw more money at it because we enjoy it sort of thing. Because I have my other businesses that I do. Uh, 
obviously now investing in a store and that it changed a little more. Brad actually uh, quit his uh, his managing job uh, for him to actually run the store for us. Uh, I still go in there. I still do a lot of our creative stuff uh, with the printers and uh, uh, the designs and dealing with uh, companies. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's become a big boy business mm. through no fault of our own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's good if you got the um, if someone has the time to 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 dedicate to it. Like the Brad was able to felt secure enough that he could quit his day job. Yeah. Take it over. Yeah. That's always a problem with hobby businesses. Like they start to grow, and then you're just like, oh my god, it's just swallowing up all my time, and it's still not making yeah. enough that I can just quit and do this. You know, unless you've got that leap of faith. No, you're, you're, you're totally right, James. And then that's the thing is a lot of uh, our game stores in that they, they come and go or they don't really grow because people have the passion for it, but they're not, they may not have the background for business uh, mm-hmm. for that. And, and that's a challenge. And it's a hard one. I come from business, so I own other companies. So I understand how to, speak, uh, how to get things accomplished or try my best to at least. Uh, and we were able to build a plan, get things done, and realize what we needed to do to support it and to grow our lines uh, and um, and move it forward. So, yeah, we wanted to make sure we, we start from a, a place of business. And talking with, like, distributors and now working with other people's product, they really appreciate being able to talk to someone that understands how to do a spreadsheet, understands uh, cost of goods sold and get those things done. Uh, and it really give, gives us a bit of advantage even being – new to the uh, distribution portion of it for other companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've made a lot of headway already just because of the back row of my other companies. Mm-hmm. So we've been yeah, pretty lucky. Just like, you know, um, yeah, just understanding, you know, the bookkeeping end of it. Oh, exactly. You know, so many, so many businesses, they fail because the person doesn't understand that, well, you got to do your books more than just sort of, my bills are in one pocket and my invoices are in the other pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, dump them on the bookkeeper yeah. and he screams at you and cries. Well, even yourself with hotline and that, sorry, how many other conventions have come and gone? Cause people say, wouldn't it be cool to have a convention? Well, and yeah. they have a convention and then they may have a second one, but they don't have the longevity a longevity of what, like what you've done because you understand there's a lot of work goes on to it. And it's not just what you like is you have to figure out what people want uh, in the community as well. You can't just stock the stuff that wouldn't it be cool or I want to really play this game, but you have to listen to what, what the community is, is trying to establish for them to play. Yeah. It's a, that, that Venn diagram of, you know, your, what your passion, what your customers want, and with hot lead, it's what the, the attendees want, what I want, or what you know my team wants, and you know what the dealers that rent booths what they want too. That's and right. In the middle there is the perfect convention. Hundred percent, and you have to like it's great trying to be a purist uh, and say, for example, like when I first started going to hot lead, it was all historical. And then you started allowing other games in there as well because I think there's a lot to learn. I don't think it's an either or or us versus them. I think it's one of those situations where uh, people have to understand historicals are where, where this hobby came from, like Little Wars, right? That's that, that's the type of thing that it began with, uh, or military tactics, and we have to realize that, and there's nothing wrong with putting a bit of fantasy into it. Well, 
as you know, I've always had an interest in fantasy and science fiction work. Yeah. But what I what Hotlet has always been is a miniatures convention. Yes. So it was just that we weren't getting science fiction and fantasy games because game masters weren't coming forward to run them. It right. wasn't because I wasn't letting them in. Oh, no, I'm not trying to say that at all, but it was a group because where it was time, the historical gamers. Yeah, fantasy like fantasy and science fiction at the time was just so dominated by 40K and Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah. That's, what, you know, you didn't have people going, oh, I'm going to do a, you know, I'm just going to run a fantasy battle with. Exactly. You know, thank God things like Dragon Rampant and Frostgave have come out that people now run participation games at conventions. Oh, there's a plethora of ones. It's like the amount of different rules there are for historical. There's equal amounts now for fantasy, science fiction, gothic, horror, whatever you want to do. There's ways of telling stories. And that's what our hobby is about, is telling a story on the table. doesn't matter what it is. It's like you can go see a movie that that is about World War II, uh, about uh, survivors on a spacecraft, or someone from ancient Rome. These are all still stories. And you have to be compelling in any one of them that you want to try to do. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, I wonder too, um, Kevin, in, in your case, you, that you and Brad started slow, you gave yourself lots of time to figure it out, uh, figure out your, your uh, like to make plans and to figure out the business side of the hobby. Because I, I remember being aware of you guys, oh gosh, almost 10 years ago. And you've always been my, my go-to guys for MDF bases. Um, and I think that's sort of primarily how I've thought of six squared over the years. Mm. Um, so that was about, that was about the time that you, you got the the laser cutter and sort of realizing there was a market for that sort of thing. hundred percent. Well, the main thing is uh, our bread and butter back in the day were historical gamers because mm-hmm. a lot of the companies that sold those models, they didn't sell bases with them. You just got your lead. Uh, right. That's what it was. So there was definitely a need for that sort of thing. And at that time, we had to go and buy them from the states. So we're dealing with conversion rates, extra shipping costs, uh, and just dealing with with those type of uh, additional costs to us Canadians. Okay? Uh, yeah. So we definitely saw there was an opportunity there to build something domestic uh, and to listen to what people want. So if someone had, hey, I really want a movement trade like this dimension, that we were still small, uh, small enough and eager enough to help people to make up the, the extra pieces into our uh, into our catalog because it never really cost us anything except our time to get those things done. And we loved learning about the games that the people that uh, were nice enough to choose us to, to uh, be a client for us to learn about what they wanted and built their games themselves. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a transition right now because with the game store, we had to move to a different point of sale system. So we had to start the website over from scratch. So we're still slowly getting everything of our stuff into the system itself. Uh, but trying to balance out all these other uh, hobby lines that we're now carrying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your store now. You're, it's in St. Catharines. Yeah. And uh, so if, uh, if I walk into the store, um, what am I going to see on the shelves? Well, first thing when you walk into the stores, you're going to go through, because we, we took over the second floor of a building that contains World Gym. So we, we were very lucky. Uh, my realtor was able to find us a big space because one of the things was, is if we were going to do this, we wanted to build a community space that's attached to a game store, not a game store with space to play games. That was important to us. The reason why we jumped into this is uh, I do a lot of volunteer work in my community. So I, like, I'm chair of our chamber of commerce. I work on the, like the industrial association. I deal with a lot of different groups. 
And a lot of things that were consistent for presentations that were coming to us from, from schools, be it uh, primary, middle school, high school, secondary, is the challenges people were having is, as the students came back, that there was this disconnect of how people related. They lost two years of socialization. Mm. Like, and even my business partner for my other company, her kids lost their last year of high school and the first year of university. Mm-hmm. I still have friends that have been my friends for since that time because we were able to bond and connect. They lost that opportunity. And that's one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to find a space to show what the power of our hobby is about socialization. Video games are awesome. I love VR. I love those things. But it's not the same of sitting across the table with some friends and building something on the table where you talk, you integrate, you see body language, you learn how to talk to people because you can't say whatever you want. If it gets too uncomfortable, uh, just click off and you're done. You're still in that room with the people. And that's one of the things that we're we're really getting back to is how can we integrate these social skills that our hobby teaches into everyday life? And that's why we decided to start a a game store. So how much, uh, how much space is it dedicated to gaming advice, um, like uh, shelf space, like retail stuff? So when you walk through the door, it's going to, uh, if we do our job right, it's going to take you about 20 minutes to get inside because we've built up through the stairwell. We've sculpted the walls to be different areas. So we have one area that looks like a castle keep. Another area, it looks like the, the entrance to the, um, the doors of Durin from Lord of the Rings. We have a... Uh, another area that looks like you're inside a submarine as you're going up the stairs. And on the walls, we have a lot of uh, memorabilia. Mm. We have old board games from the forties, fifties. We have, we have original set of Lego from the 1940s. These type of things, just showing people that, you know what, even though you play these games now, there's a big history to what's gone. We have like all the second edition AD&D modules. When you walk into the store, uh, you will see, major features. So we carry the, the, the triumvirate, the big three. So we have GW uh, for miniatures. We do have uh, Magic for card games. We have uh, D&D for your role-playing games. But our job as Six Squared Studios has always been supporting the smaller guy, the cottage industry. So we carry complete lines for uh, Flames of War, uh, Bolt Action, uh, What's the, the World of Tank one that's uh, that's now just gone crazy on our shelf. We have six millimeter Napoleonics from Warlord. Uh, we, we carry these things because companies always say, oh, there's no value in carrying historical miniatures in your uh, in your store. No one buys them. No one buys them if you don't support a game. All right. right? right. That's the thing. We have people. We have amazing people that are doing events. We had a 26 no, sorry, 28-person doubles bolt action tournament uh, this past this past November. We have a primer for uh, people going down for the hardcore uh, Adepticon one that's sold out. That's happening later on in the month. The, the people like the, the historical games. It's the idea is you have to get them off uh, outside of the box and show them what they're all about. Demystify because it's a big investment in any game. If you don't show what's inside the box might not buy that box and we we really try to do our demos and really get people the opportunity to to touch the stuff and to figure out uh, you need that precious in your collection Mm, mm. oh it's amazing 
Yeah. And we have a lot of fun ones because Warlord is one of the most amazing. We go direct with Warlord because they're so easy to deal with. And they have such a plethora of games that they bring in. Uh, like Judge, like even for like sci-fi things, they have a great fantasy skirmish game. They have now Mythic Americas, which is an amazing indigenous one that deals with mythology of the different nations. Uh, you have Judge Dread. You have all these other fun games that they carry. Uh, Battleline does a great job for their games that we bring out. Uh, and we really like exploring those different smaller games and getting people excited about it because I'm a rules collector at heart. I have, like, that's what my collection is about is miniature rule game systems. And again, it's one of the things I have to hunt for. It. I always had to go somewhere else because our local game stores run by amazing people, but they only carried the big three because that was easy to turn over. And it's not a lot of work to get done. I want to do that work and find those new ones and put those onto, onto the shelf. Mm -hmm. I know, like I, I got a you know local game store open up in town. Yeah. I was like, oh, hooray! And I, I sent the message. Hey, are you going to be interested in? You know, are you going to be carrying any of the you know um, plastic sets from you know Oathmark, Gripping Beast, Perry's, Warlord? You know, yep. any of those? Didn't even answer me. And it's like, really? Like, I'm sure your distributor has these. A lot of distributors are, are really challenged right now, to be fair to them. But the thing is, though, if you have a community that wants it, talk to the people that make the games. Reach out to these individual companies. Well, we found them, and then we deal with them. And some of them are too small to, to deal with individuals because one of the hard parts about uh, stocking a store is, all right, uh, I found Game X that I really like from this guy. My distributor doesn't carry, or doesn't carry it very well, where that they get it in once, and all of a sudden it's out of stock most of the things so you can get some of the accessories but the main game is not there and how can you sell yeah. a game without the core set but the thing is uh they have to have enough for you to be able to bring it in oh it's going well that you have enough to be able to buy another restock from them makes sense for shipping or whatever their requirements are yeah. companies like battleline have a great plethora of great games like that uh warlord who carries a lot of the osprey and everything else as well they have enough that we are able to do like reorders from them every other week uh, and bringing that stuff. And that's mostly historical. So it's not that that stuff just sits on our shelf and it's us being polite to our historical uh, clients who, who got us where we were through our bases. It's that this is something that's a viable game and young kids, once they see it on the table, are interested in it. But they would have known otherwise unless they saw it being played and got a chance to roll some dice with these people that are advocates for it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it, and it and it's always trouble. Like you know, when I when I ran um, J and M miniatures out of my dining room, you know, it's all like trying to guess what's going to be the next big thing. Yeah, you know, and it's like, oh, there's this saga. Well, okay, I'll take you know, I'll, I'll get like one, you know, two copies of the rules and some basic, and you know, the next convention we could have sold six. Oh, easy, exactly. And we're just like, well, oh. <laughs> You know, and then we stocked, you know, we stocked on something else and it just sat there. Nope, 100%. What I try to do is, uh, YouTube's a great resource for a game store, is go watch the rule sets, watch it being played, see what's going on. Preferably by a third party that uh, doesn't have a vested interest in the success of the game. Uh, yeah, yeah. But take a look at those things. And again, like, like you, I, uh, I'm a gamer. So if it's something that I find interesting and fun, We'll give it a try. Like uh, one we're really excited about coming in right now is uh, Creature Caster, another Canadian content company. 
uh, they're coming out with their skirmish game in that. And we're the only store down here that's carrying the thing. Uh, when it comes in, we, we have it and we know it's good. We already got miniatures in. They're great to direct as well uh, for the stuff. And we're excited to support their endeavor in, into, into that group. And how we support yeah, for it, like we talked about the idea of community centers, we have 16 permanent uh, uh, six by eight gaming tables in our space. Wow. In addition to it, we have enough room still to run uh, with chair tables for board games or miniature games, another 50 spaces. So wow. we're very lucky with the amount of space we have. We're hoping once a year, too, to build a convention here in the fall because right across the street is a convention center. Uh, so that we will be able to do those larger format tournaments. Because Niagara, even though we're a tourist destination and we have a great uh, community of people down here, we don't have a gaming convention. It's weird. I did one uh, at my warehouse of, uh, before COVID. It went very well. Um but then COVID shut it down. So I'm really excited about seeing where I can grow that sort of opportunity and, and get things going on. And we try our best to keep, uh, keep supporting the different things that are out there uh, to make sure that we're not just about Niagara, we're about the, the greater community because we can learn from each other's friendly local gaming stores, for sure. Well, yeah, it's... it's um, I've always tried to take the attitude, too, with just, you know, it, it's... You know, rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, helping helping this event grow isn't going to diminish my event. It's no. just going to grow the community. The community will be stronger and healthier. And yeah, maybe some people won't come to my event, but whatever. Sometimes people don't come. And then next year I see them. I, I've stopped worrying about it. <laughs> we can't worry about that. All we can try to be as positive as we can because there's enough negativity out there. Our, our hobby is supposed to be escape from negativity. Right. It's all, all of a sudden becomes all this uh, teeth gnashing and, and hand wringing, then I think you need a new hobby. That's yeah. the whole thing is just try your best to have fun and to share that joy that you're finding with other people. That's all oh we can God, try to do in life. Yeah. Yeah. What's the uh, age makeup of your uh, regulars, like for your gaming tables? Well, it's pretty neat uh, because we're seeing more and more new faces coming out. Uh, the diversity of our groups is, is really exciting. We have like some of our traditional people that came over from Six Words Studios. The reason we call the game uh, the, uh, the store Mecca Games is because people have been driving in from Ottawa, from Kitchener, from from uh, all over the place. Have been coming down because we're on certain podcasts and, uh, and, and they hear about it and they want to come down because, wow, it's a 6,400 square foot uh, game store. I want to see what that looks like. Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've guys done your, your treks down in the U S to think uh, some of the game stores down there and like the huge ones that are just amazing. Oh yeah. Imperial hobbies. Oh, hundred percent. There's so many great ones. I want to try to recreate some of my things I've seen in my travels up here in Canada. Uh, because the, the, the amazing one in Canada, of course, is Sentry Box out in Calgary. Yeah. Uh, that's huge. But we don't have anything equivalent to that here in Ontario. So I wanted to create something like that. And luckily enough, we had the resources and the luck to find a space to be able to do that. But our age group goes from uh, kids uh, coming in with their parents, uh, high schoolers, a lot of people now, because we're attached to the gym, the fun part about it was people poking their head and trying to figure out what this is all about. And these guys, these, these, these 
pumped up uh, guys you think would have nothing to do with us, the ones that would kick sand in your face on the beach sort of uh, stereotypes or looking that way, were interested in getting into games because they said, I understand you can meet people playing games uh, and then talk to them, that sort of thing, because they don't want to go back to the bar scene. They yeah. want to find a way of, of meeting other people. And we have a good um, good ratio of the idea of uh, there's there's men, there's women, there's people from different orientations, all these things. It's an inclusive environment so that people feel really comfortable for that. Well done, you. We have a Catan tournament that's being sponsored by uh, a local pride group that reached out to us. They would we be willing oh, no to kidding. do that. Wow. They said, 100%, let's, let's play Catan for a day and, and raise some money for, for a good cause. So we're, we're excited about that sort of thing. And everyone should feel welcome. But that's the whole thing is it, no one owns our hobby. It, it's something that's a collective. And Ooh. making sure that people respect everyone there. Uh, so it doesn't matter if the person is young, they're old, they're fat, they're thin. Uh, it, it's the idea of just just have fun and treat them like you want to be treated. That's, all, that's our only rule. Ooh. Oh, and, and don't pee off the side of the toilet because that's really irritating to clear up yeah the guy know. that has to clean the bathroom yeah that's no, that down. sucks yeah other just, than that sit down, two make sure you get there's it. two rules yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's uh i don't want to name any particular store but uh, a place where i used to hang out a lot um i would only use the washroom if i absolutely had to because it was brutal um it was like um, i don't know it was like it was third world um yeah so, yeah. Do you, no. uh, you guys self uh, like? Have you thought about the gaming cafe route? Uh, do you offer coffee or snacks or anything, or is that we offer a lot of snacks? That so we have uh, quite a bit of stuff in there. So we have our uh, our snack uh, snack concession area for people mm -hmm. to grab something quick. We're also lucky that there's a lot of uh, there's a Tim Hortons across the street. Uh, there's Burger King. There's there's Subway. There's there's a lot of food within uh, five minute walking distance of the of the space. But yeah, we definitely have our drinks, our pop uh, for the role players. We have our uh, our cheesies so they can get that uh, orange dust all over the place. Uh, we have everything covered for that for the rooms. And, and we're very thankful because we really put a lot of effort into getting it. We, we got the lease back in July, but didn't really open officially upstairs until October because from floor to ceiling, we redesigned the entire space uh, for that to make it something that wow, this is going to catch your eye when you come in. You're not going to expect it. And because we put so much effort into that, making sure that our washrooms are clean and, and smell nice and that sort of thing, people really respect the space. We've not had any issues. It's, it's really been wonderful, uh, the interaction we've had with the community so far. Well, that's great. That's great. Yes. I, I'm looking for you, uh, as we're talking, I'm looking for you on, on YouTube. Um, do you have your own channel or is it... Uh... No, no, I, I don't do any YouTubing so far and that sort of thing. We were on Instagram and on Facebook uh, for that. Uh, there's one YouTube video about our store that uh, Board Game Maniacs did. Yeah, um, that's what I'm finding. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there, there's that, which was a walkthrough when we first started out uh, before we actually had our grand opening. So it gives you an idea of the size of the space, everything going on, and, and the pathway to, uh, to Mecca up the stair. Uh, to get there. Uh, but no, no, it's not one of the things. We do have a room that's dedicated to podcasting, though, so people can do events there. Uh, as well as we have like a separate role playing room that we also do paint classes and hobby uh, technique uh, in there. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't have the dedication that you guys do to be able to put something out on a regular basis. 
I, I'm just uh, not flaky enough to make sure I get stuff out on Facebook and uh, Instagram semi-regularly. So, you know, it's, okay. it's a lot of work. I mean, and it, is. it sounds like you guys are, are putting the work into your space and into building a community. And I think that's, uh, that's outstanding. Well, and you still got your, you know, six squared as a factory, right? You some, still got to run the laser cutter and package up yeah. orders, right? Plus the laser cutter, the print farm that's going strong too. So uh, we sculpted that. So we moved most of our stuff over to 3D printing. It allows us to do different scales much easier, yeah. uh, as well as we work with uh, we work with different artists as well that we uh, commission to be able to uh, do prints of their pieces as well and promote their artistry. There's so many amazing people like uh, that are in the hobby out there. Like I, I'm thinking like Duncan out of England who does amazing Cthulhu and uh, fantasy figures. We have another uh, Pascal from Spain who does amazing sci-fi stuff for us. Like there's so many different companies out there that we've connected with uh, and said, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely share in what's going on here. Pay for the rights to be able to print these things up and, People love it. And we do print service too on demand. So people will bring us models. As long as you have the model and you paid for the model or you have it, then we can do a print service for you. Because one thing we have to do is we have to respect the artists. That's why I love companies that promote and say, yeah, this was sculpted by, because I was a huge Reaper fan um, for a lot of times. I would go down to Texas for their convention because they really showed us as an art form this hobby and they would promote the artists and the sculptors and made yes. them kind of rock stars to do. so yeah. that's that's the thing i really enjoy and we have our own uh, guys up here in that too and that's sort of thing, bob merch and that sort of thing he's made quite a name for himself for his stuff and he still does the traditional sculpting so it's always good seeing his stuff out there and there's a lot of amazing people and even our own backyards like the amount of people that come into our area into our store i've never seen before but have podcasts uh, that they've done and quite successfully. Like there's one guy that does uh, this podcast where he paints a, a fantasy model and talks about how to put it into a story. So it's almost like this improv uh, meets uh, who's the painter with the, the hair, uh, the the afro. Oh. Um, Gosh darn um, it! Happy little yeah, yeah, yes. He's almost like that. He's just soothing, talks about it, and figures out. And by the end of it, it's not only do you have to see how he's painting a model, which he's very talented, but he yeah. also tells you how to put it into a storyline. Huh. Uh, and there's so many people out there like that, like Board Game Maniac, who just goes through and plays retro games and celebrates family. Um, yeah. Of course, there's mini wargaming. Uh, they've been around. They've been quite successful. They're the big boys. But there's so many people out there, like yourselves. You're doing content about something you love and are sharing that passion for it. That's important. Yeah. 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 We, we, our whole raison d'etre is really just, you know, to be cool and, uh, <laughs> but also to just talk about, uh, the Canadian hobby, mostly from a, a mini and historical point of view, but yeah, we're just a little slice of it. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. So you, I guess just sort of starting to wrap up then, um, it sounds like you see the, the Canadian hobby and all its diversity as being a really healthy thing. I do. I think right now we're definitely in a renaissance for games because I think accessibility to be able to put out your ideas is at an all-time high. It's never been easier to do that. And mm -hmm. yes. uh, not to get negative for things, but some of the big boys that have been bought by corporations that have to deal with investors and stocks and that sort of thing. 
they're starting to really show that they're not maybe necessarily as enthusiastic about being part of the community rather than of us buying things from them. So I think we're going to have uh, 2023, 2024, I think we'll see a major shift for people looking for those indie cottage games that if they're smart, they're going to be able to get it moving forward. You know, there's this, you know, the latest nonsense licensing nonsense with um, Hasbro. Yeah. Because of Hasbro. Like, yeah. You know, like if, if that will make, if that will drive people to look for other role-playing games, it's like, yeah, thank you. You know, there's, there's more than Dungeons and Dragons out there. You know, there's more than Warhammer 40,000 out there. You know, take, take your space Marines and play something else if you're if you're sick of what Games Workshop is you know done exactly then play another game your model or if they decide to change the rules on you no one's going to come to your house and take your other rules away so keep playing yes. the rules you want to play exactly Whatever you want to do as a game store we're going to promote new products but we're going to find those things but even then we're still having retro game nights and that sort of thing yeah uh, then we'll we'll move those things forward it, it's just just enjoy it. No one's going to have to tell you how to play it. And this is the idea of, of you figure out what you like to do. If you don't like a certain rule in the game and neither does your buddy, don't use that rule. No one's going to come. If you're going to a tournament, then you have to follow the rules. If you're just playing across the table with someone else, whatever is fun. Like when my brother and I were growing up, I made up rules for my, my green army men. <laughs> and develop, develop our sets and that story because at that time there was no game store in the area yeah. uh, and I had to figure out how to make it I needed rules I, I was one of those kids that had to have everything and, and I guess that is, that is where the problem lies in that you know I'm just you know little Jimmy in my basement I, you know and I've got my, my army of space marines and I want to go play so I go down to the store so I have to play the latest rules because that's, that's what the community has agreed on yeah, yeah. You know, and then it's not wrong. But. Yeah, but to, but then to try and find you know like-minded souls who are going, well, I don't really like the latest edition. I like the last edition. Yeah. Oh God, me too. You know, like trying to find those people. Yeah, yeah and, and hopefully that happens rather than little Jimmy meeting you know somebody who who is just there to stomp newbies, right? Because that's yeah. You know, and then, and then I throw my I, I I just throw my army in a box and I I don't play anymore. Yeah. So we have the Smash Mouth tournaments because that's what some people want. But what our things are too is we run narratives, uh, you know, campaigns of things. So progression. So we have progression for bolt action where people can build up their things and do the hobbying together and figure out the rules. We have one for Age of Sigma where it starts off small and you can build up an army for it. And we're going to do that for other games that we have in the, in the store as well because, again, it's supposed to be a little bit of storytelling. That's always been our passion. I'm not a tournament guy. I'll play doubles because it's not as competitive and I hope to lose the first game from in the beer tables for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> but the whole thing is, it's like, I, I just don't like it because if someone gets super competitive with me, it brings out the worst in me as well. To be yeah. so I don't like why I become. So I'd rather just have something where it's just fun and I don't have to worry about it. It's not about winning or losing. Our best prizes are randomized. We don't just throw everything at the person who has the smashes the most people. We want to make sure that we have prize support for everyone there because those guys probably don't need new models or, or yeah. girls. Uh, we want to make sure we encourage people to come back again or else you're going to really diminish your pool and not grow the, the hog. Yeah. 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 Like they used to, I, I recall the, the 
I don't know if Games Workshop still does this for their tournaments. They used they used to have awards for you know best painted army, best yeah. backstory for the army. Right. Um, you know, people voted on who is the who is the uh, most sportsman like player. Exactly. Who do you want to play again? Exactly. Yeah. And and these all counted as much as how many games you won. Yeah. And it should be that way because again, it's not about winning losing. It's the idea someone has to lose in a story. It doesn't make Darth Vader uh, a bad character, even though he lost. It's the idea that we need someone that compelling to make a good guy look good. You need an equally bad bad guy, and that's yeah. the same about so, winning and losing. So we've come right back to our opening where we talked about storytelling. You're absolutely yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Like look at the way you and I play, Mike. You know, yeah. the time we're, you know, as we're moving the figures around, we're telling little stories about what's happening, you know, what, what's going, the thoughts going through this guy's head. And no, we're not, we're not making little noises. On the that. giant bear is about to kill him and, you know, throw him into the trees. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, oh, some of the best ones are these little mashup games that we find at the conventions. That's why I loved conventions is because you had people that say, oh, I have this awesome story I want to tell. And it's these weird rules uh, that they, they'll put together. But the thing is, it worked. And it was fun and it made me be more creative uh, because it's like, it's like creating a short story. It's like you figure those things out and then to get really good. You, you start building up these campaigns where you connect two or three of these stories together. And it's just like, it's, it's just a lot of fun to recreate what we see, uh, what we see on film or TV or read in books. We can translate that into our hobby and put our own little uh, uh, slant on it by how we paint the miniature, how we make the terrain, uh, and how we, we uh, set up the, the rules. Uh, I think that's what makes our hobby so awesome. Mm. Well, I think uh, just to wrap up, um, uh, Kevin, I think you are also what makes our, our hobby uh, so awesome. So um, I'm already thinking that uh, my next, uh, the next time I, uh, my wife and I come down to buy wine in uh, your part of the world, we're gonna stop in, so. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see you. That'd be perfect. That would be awesome. And uh, hopefully we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you at Hot Lead. And uh, so I've got uh, your your website. I'll include that in the, the pod notes. Um, if there's anything else, uh, I'll put a link to that uh, that War Games Maniac YouTube thing that you I found that where he does the walkthrough. So I'm going to look at that afterwards. Perfect. My six squared resin haystack show up on almost every battlefield. I love. Thank you so much. Yeah, those were some of our first sculpts in that, but they still hold up. So yeah, they're great. They're great. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. Very good. Right. Except really really they, they don't show up and they don't show show up on the moons of Jupiter. Well, that'd be weird. You need some methane stacks or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me, guys. I really yeah, appreciate and, it. And we hope to uh, we hope to have you back at some point just to check in with you and see how uh, see what you guys are up to and. Uh, if you yeah. get that convention going down there, let us know. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk that up for you. Sounds like a plan. I really appreciate it, guys, and thanks for uh, adding more flavor to the hobby. Okay, it's, what do. it's more maple syrup. Sometimes. More maple syrup. Exactly. Right. You're the poutine of gaming, guys. Well done. Okay. High <laughs> praise.
Before we go, we just want to do a little roundup on uh, a few things uh, going on. You are busy planning hot lead. I noticed the notices have gone out. Yes, that is going to absorb much of my hobby time between now and the end of March, mm -hmm. um, which kind of distresses me. But yeah. as I'm all excited, I want to do things. I'm assembling dwarves and I'm assembling Austrians and 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 you know I got an idea to do some some hobbits and then I got all my space stuff out because I got ideas for the rules to try and fix them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like oh no I have to update the website and you know schedule games and contact vendors and yeah but you've got a you've got a team that can help you with that right um or does the team sort of more help on the day they help on the day yeah okay yeah so like i i i you know i i create the plan and then generate the layout and stuff and i push it out to everybody so that way you know like steve is really good steve i i, I call steve my he's my he's my squadron sergeant major which is what he was mm -hmm. when he was in, in in the reserves he was the ssm for first is ours so he's he does exactly that he just makes sure that the colonel's plan is executed and he makes sure elizabeth is taken care of at the front desk you know he's always like bringing her water and you know all that good stuff he looks after her he it wouldn't happen without elizabeth no no it wouldn't and in about in about a month she will start processing game register um game registrations because people are sending their their game, you know what they want to play on via email now. We're going to hold a few slots back in every game. You know, it's easier when it's like you know eight, you know eight players in a game. It's like, well, okay, you hold back two for people to sign up on a day. When it's only four slots in the game, it's like, oh, maybe I hold one slot back. Do I hold two slots back? Do I just let people fill it up and then someone's all upset? And it's like, oh yeah, it's, you, you never you never make everyone happy. Challenges, you know. yeah. Well, it's challenging. It's challenging. I'm challenged. I'm not sure I'm going to commit to running a game, but I am committing to taking time off to come down. So I'm looking well. That's good. I'm looking forward to it. The other thing that I just want to report on my end is that uh, we mentioned in our last podcast uh, Lucas's um, Alps of Flame. Yes. Well, he's uh, it's out. Woo! The STL files in the wild. Hope that I'll have time in the next weeks or so to uh, start downloading them and printing a few of them. Uh, I'm still printing his Wurtenbergers, and they are very, very nice. Yeah, I saw the pictures. They look very pretty. And, you know, you got to about the Battle of Egmo. The Wurtenberg Light Brigade, they stormed across this bridge and stormed a schloss and captured captured a flag from a regiment of Grenzers and took, like, 200 prisoners. And this is all, like, right, you know, Napoleon's headquarters is just, just up the hill. You know, these, like, they did this, like, right under the emperor's nose. They got so many brownie points. Wow. Always I think they game. got an extra ration of brandy or something. Got a couple of medals thrown at them. You know? Well, that's good because most of the Wurtenbergers, I think all 16,000 of them, most of them died in the 1812 campaign. So, Well, yeah. A lot of people died in that campaign. Yeah, the 1812 campaign was really hard on the Confederation troop. The Bavarian army was just destroyed. You know, like the, the Bavarian cavalry is basically a division. By the time they got to the Neem, back to the Neiman River, like the, it just it just evaporated. Like there was nothing left. <laughs> yeah, certainly no horses. Maybe a few guys on foot. Yeah, uh, you know it's funny. Uh, uh, Roger was talking about uh, some classic fiction, like the C.S. Forster books. I treated myself to a used copy of um, uh, Delderfield's uh, Seven Men of Gascony. Oh yes, how is that? 
heavy reading. It's fun. It is great is fun. It? Okay. Um, because it's like it's like the the antidote to Sharp's rifles. The French are real people. They have their own stories. Uh, they have their own motives for fighting. I, I've just got to the point now where they're marching, where they've gotten to Moscow, where everything is going to shit, and the the, the mm. city is on fire. And it's about to get grim. And you just know that most of these guys that you're already quite fond of are not going to make a home alive, right? So. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fiction. Maybe you know half of them will make it. Yeah. Or how far? How you know how long? How far along in the book are you? Are you like right at the end? <laughs> uh, it's about uh, two thirds of the way through. So I don't know. Maybe one or two of them makes it to water. Yeah, because you got you got the German campaign, and then you got the defense of France, and yeah, maybe yeah. one of them will survive through to Waterloo. Well, the the one character uh, who's the youngest of them. You meet him in the in the prologue where he's like this old shell-shocked reclusive veteran in some little French town. And the, right. the curate comes to him to say, you know, the emperor's body has come back from uh, St. Helena. It's being buried in Paris. And, and you know, you're one of the only men who remembers the emperor in his glory days. And you need to tell, write down your story. And he's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. and then he goes, he opens up his sketchbook because he was an artist. Mm. He starts looking at all these sketches of his old friends and he starts reminiscing, right? And that's when the story starts. So you know that one of them is alive. But Yeah. Yeah. So he's probably the only survivor. I think so. Yeah. Um, well, have have you read the have you read the Brigadier Gerard stories? Are are they Conan Doyle? Yes. Yes, they're hysterically funny. Um, yes. Because they're they're so tongue in cheek and they're so like it's funny because he is Brigadier Gerard is a flashman without the irony. Like he's he's flashman, yeah. but not crudely so, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, there isn't the crudity. Like, of course, what makes Flashman such an entertaining character is he is he's an honest rogue, right? Yeah. He's yeah. being honest to the he's being honest to the reader that you know I'm I'm a bastard, I'm prejudiced, I beat anyone who's not English as long as I can get away with it. Yeah, you know, suck up to anyone with power. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, Brigadier Gerard, it's very unironic, but he is very like he does very much think that you know all the men envy him and all the women want him. Yeah, yeah, he's oh, he's like, he's a, a comic character, but he's also like you know he's he's kind of like a cock of the walk, right? He's like a he's like yeah. my 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 terrier dog. You know, he thinks he's the biggest dog out there. Yeah, I I love the I love the line. It's a story where it's set. I think it's like in 1808, you know, like they're in garrison and he's, you know, got a secret mission from the emperor, but he's talking about, you know, and he's still just like a, a captain. He says, you know, and we're all spurs and mustaches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that to me, that just sums up in Napoleonic Azar. Right. Yeah, for sure. They're just yeah. all bravado and swagger. When I was looking for clergymen for sharp practice, uh, and someone sent me to Black Hazar's miniatures, and it was like, oh, you can order them in, you know, single. You don't have to buy like a whole pack to get one figure, which is nice. But it's like, oh, there's a nice pack of camp followers. And I'm really thinking that, you know, I should add a Vivandier, you know, canteen girl to my to my Bavarian, so she can follow hands and friends around. And, yeah, there there actually is a cantonier in the the Delderfield books of Men of Gascony. That's kind of an interesting. Well, they 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 were made they were made official in the French army. Like they yeah. were they were organized. Yeah. They were given like little badges. Mm -hmm. So it, it was an attempt by the French army to try and control all these hangers on that would accumulate around mm -hmm. an army on the march. Right. Right. 
you know, like, the, you know, the Austrian army in the 1809 campaign, when they're invading Bavaria, their, their march got kind of screwed up by, yeah, these civilian contractors um, just kind of pushing into the column. Right. With their wagons and donkeys and because they're there to, you know, they're to sell spare shoes and brandy and, you know, boot black and whatever else a soldier needs that he uh, can't just draw from, you know, the ration wagon. So at exorbitant prices. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can read all about them with uh, Swords Around the Throne. Right, right. That, yeah, great book. Speaking of speaking of girls, I here's a question we want to throw out to our, our listeners. I haven't run this by James yet. The other day I discovered there is a niche art form of um, hot young girls in historical military uniforms. You just discovered this? I did. I, I have lived you are so long. You are so innocent. I have a sheltered life and you it know must be because you're a clergyman i guess so but i mean you know some of them are here's here's one if you are watching yeah, YouTube, you know? yeah uh, that 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 is that is a very um yeah like wow this um, is a this is by a polish guy called bartek and he does uh artwork. very fanciful uniform yeah and i understand uh some of it is sold by um fighting 15s i think he's you know they've used him and i, I don't know i like just is it weird like hot girls in rather uh, very yeah in curacia uniforms charging or at least well at least that 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 picture that you sent me sort of wow this is weird um you know their uniforms look not it wasn't like the bartek thing where there's like things cut away and cleavage and yeah yeah. um it was just very much it's you know it's kind of like you know the girl girls in panzer Mm -hmm. comic except you know they're they're in French or they're in Russian cuirassier uniforms. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. Now, I did know about girls on Panzer, and and it's you know, but which I think is largely for Japanese schoolgirls. But I don't know. Maybe guys watch it too. I don't know. I'm sure they that's do. Mostly where I've heard about it from. I didn't. You know. Anyway, write us, write us, and tell you what you think. Girls in uh, art of anime girls in historical <laughs> military uniforms. <laughs> Good thing. Is it a bad thing? Are you indifferent to it? I, you know, it's. Uh, would you? Here's another question: Would you buy miniatures of, uh, like, would you? Would you field units of? I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's, um, who's that chappy that does the sort of late 19th century women in German hussar uniforms? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think uh, is that a line sold by Brigade Games? Maybe I don't know. Yeah, and and the you know he kind of modeled it off that you know that at the at the time their you know their colonel in chief was a you know imperial princess and so right. she's in her uniform and he kind of said hey let's do a whole regiment of them on horses and skirmishing with rifles and a maxim gun team and sure. you know every and and you know and then of course everybody doing Victorian science fiction has to buy these figures so they show up everywhere you know just like just like you know Mao's tanks. And, and our, our friend Bob Merch does like SS girls in, you know, uniforms. And I confess. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm those not, are, those are characters though. They're pulp figures. Yeah. As a, so. Yeah. As opposed to, as opposed to like, you know, whole, you know, you, you know, you can make an army of these German women hussars, you yeah. know, complete with the death set on their Busbies. Yeah. One of the gals in the Maxim gun team has glasses. You know, she's obviously the nerd of the group. <laughs> you know, like it's just it's just very i i don't know like they're they're yeah it it's a thing like you know i mean you know judgment free man whatever gets your freak on 
Yeah, we're not we're not kink sharing, but just tell us what you think. Or we're not we're not going to kink shame either. No, kink shame. Yeah, kink shaming. That's not kink sharing. Well, I, I, maybe we are kink sharing. You know what? I should stop talking because that's <laughs> yes. I, I had one more. Just I had one more this whole last five minutes. Yeah, I had one more question for you, my friend. You were talking about space gaming and stuff. Yes. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how interested are you in uh, Zeno's rampant? Seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. You know, like, I would like to play it, like, because if if it was just a blue book, I would have just ordered it by now, mm-hmm. and just taken a stab. It's a little thicker, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's like it's like the Lion Rampant um, second edition. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's what thirty pounds, mm-hmm. so forty five dollars. It's like eh, I want to I want to try it before I commit. Like some of the things that I've read about it sound really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, or like, am I, but it, it's also so, you know, you can do so many different things. Like, is it, you know, am I going to be paying, you know, all this money for something I want to use half the book, right? You know, because I, I very much want, you know, sort of hard sci fi. Yeah. Yeah. Something like, you know, The Expanse, not killing zombie, you know, zombie apocalypse. Um, you know, I, I'm not really interested in post apocalyptic stuff because it's just depressing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, God, if you want a fantasy, post-apocalyptic gaming is total fantasy. It's like, no, we're all going to be dead. Yeah. Like, sorry. <laughs> it's just... I, I read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and uh, I, yeah, that's it. Like, I don't want to... like yeah, Just take me in a blaze of nuclear glory. <laughs> but anyway, that's a, that's a real downer note to end the podcast on it is a downer um, note, but we should think of i don't know is there a game about bunnies or something that we could talk about for a minute <laughs> well oh you know hobbits um yeah tell us about hobbits give, give me something happy about hobbits before we go i was wondering about because of course you know looking at oh. hobbit miniatures you know like the war games atlantic plastic halfling militia which are like oh you know yeah I was, I was very excited i got the sample sprue from wss and everything but they're really chunky you know i mean yeah they're short but it, and it's like you know when you read lord of the rings which you should you know uh pippin when he's taken to minus tirith is mistaken for a child of one of the soldiers in the garrison right. by a baragond that's right yes the the, the, the ch- child of one of the soldiers in the garrison Right, he says, "Whose son are you?" You know, and he thinks he's just a, you know another thirteen-year-old kid, right? Because like you know, they're not like they're not fat, you know, they don't have enormous feet, you know, like and like these min- you know the miniatures always really exaggerate the feet. Yes, you know, yeah. and really, it's like okay, they had large, you know, large hairy feet. It's like okay, well, you know, a guy with you know size twelves versus size ten shoes, he's gonna have big feet, but you know, and when you put him. You know, boil them down to a uh, 28 millimeter miniature, they're not going to look that much bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So I had the thought of using HO scale, and, and Patrick, he had bought and he wasn't using, so he gave me for Christmas because he's such a nice swell, nice fellow. Um, he gave me, he, he had a box of the Airfix Robin Hood set. Oh, HO. yeah, yeah, yeah. I held them up to, I do have the Games Workshop um, Mariadoc in you know his rohan gear yes and they're the same size as mary hmm. and they actually they're the like they're the same height as the war games atlantic hobbits except they're just naturally 
they're just more realistically proportioned because the war games Atlantic hobbits are like fat and they've got these giant heads because that's the sculpting is, you know, you, you, you have these big heads so you can have the, you can have the face like the old, like the old uh, Warhammer fantasy dwarves just kind of became head with feet. Right. 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 Yeah. There's very, you know, just little tiny torso, right. Which is why I don't like them. They're just stupid figures. Go buy a Colin Patton sculpt. You can get Colin Patton sculpts from Thistle and Rose in Detroit or from Con- Conqueror Models in uh, England or his own company, Regnarok. Mm. You know, so you can get dwarves from three different sources. It's pretty cool. I know he's come up with another dwarf king that it's like, damn it, I already have two. I don't need another. You could have dwarf civil wars. Yeah. Anyway, but so he gave me the the the, the Airfix uh, Robin Hood set, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, I, you know, like, how could I turn these into halflings for yeah. for for Middle Earth? I mean, you know, there's a lot of a lot of guys with bows, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is cool, and just you know, instead of painting little shoes on them, just paint their you know feet flesh colored. I was thinking, I was sort of thinking today, maybe I'll you know try and play with some green stuff and try and give them some different hats and yeah, um, right. you know, maybe some trousers. So they look a little more like a, because of course, you know, the Shire in Lord of the Rings is 19th century rural England. I mean, they have potatoes, they have tobacco, they have tea. These are all not medieval things. Mm-hmm. You know, Frodo and his companions, they're, they're traveling both in, they're, they're traveling in time as well as space, right? So they go back, they basically go back to Anglo-Saxon England when they show up in, um, when Mary, when Mary and Pippin show up in Theoden's Hall. You know, I, I never thought of that. Uh, I never thought, I'd never heard it put that way. That's really insightful. Mm. Well, I am an amateur Tolkien scholar. Yeah, yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about these books because yeah. I'm a nerd that way. So those those Robin Hood figures, are, they, they must be out of print. Like how long is... Oh, they're still, um, they're, they're still, well, I mean, you know, fortunately... We used to have a store in town, Video Plus Books and Games, and oh. a stock model. Like I, you know, my Eagle transporter model for my science fiction stuff, I ordered through them. You know, they got they got the kit in for me in a couple of weeks, and you know, very reasonable price. And of course, you know, they there was a lot of Games Workshop and Magic the Gathering, but they also had model kits and some Airfix figures. And he saw the box and he bought it just on a whim. It was like cost him eight bucks. Uh, yeah, now when I, you know, I look, I was looking online and stuff, and. You know, people want exorbitant amounts of money for it. Hmm. It's like, come on, really? Yeah. So I don't know if it's out of print or or what, but you know, I was lucky. So I was also, I was also just thinking, you know, if, if I'd had some time before, you know, Microsoft needed to update. That's why I was like getting on, you know, checking out hat figures, seeing what kind of you know medieval one seventy two scale troops hat might have. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you because know, you just need guys in simple outfits with bows and staves and. You know, some axes or whatever, and yeah, there you go. The halflings, the halflings society doesn't really need a standing army because they're they've been looked after by the rangers, right? Yeah, they have it. They they have one sheriff per farthing. Yeah. So and well, until Saruman takes over, right? Right. Which is why he can take them over anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and there's well, there is the tale of years, the appendices at the end of Lord uh, end of Return of the King. there's talk about the Shire sending a company of archers uh, to fight with the Northern Kingdom, Eriador, against the 
Necromancer and Dol Guldur and Angmar. Hate that guy. Right? Yeah. What a jerk. Don't, yeah. He's such a dickhead. Yeah. Uh, and of course, and, and it's like, you know, and they, they, none of them returned. Oh. Yeah. Very sad. And that's just their, their brief little, you know. Like the Bavarians going to. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Bavarians going to, going to Moscow. <laughs> Almost those guys. Yeah. Yeah, so this company of Hobbit of Hobbit archers, and then of course you have the 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 um the battle of oh, what's it called where Bullroarer Tuck, who's of course big enough that he can ride a pony, attacks the Goblin King Golfimble. Oh yes, yes. Right. Hits his head with a shillelagh, and and knocks it off, and it goes down a rabbit hole. So he both wins the battle and invents a game of golf all at once. Mm. <laughs> Well, we have gone down almost a literal hobbit hole for the last 10 minutes, but right. that was a good antidote to, uh, that was a good palate cleanse for our dystopian discussion. Oh, yeah. I've got to, got to, you know, help my listeners out. There you go. This has been a really long podcast, but it's been a lot of fun. We talked to two really interesting uh, guests tonight, and yes. our conversation was uh, scintillating. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Just a little word about the... Um, the podcast, we do not stick our hand out for money uh, because nobody would pay for it. Uh, <laughs> so we don't have a Patreon page. We don't have uh, GoFundMe or buy me a coffee or buy me a beer. We just we just like to natter. And we hope that if you've listened to this and you've enjoyed it, uh, you'll tell your friends about it. You could, um, whatever you, wherever you get your podcasts, if you could like us or give us five stars or a pat on the back or whatever, we'd appreciate it. Give us a review on Yelp. I don't care. Yeah, give us a review on Yelp. I don't know. <laughs> if you feel like sticking your hand in your wallet, give it to give it to your local cat rescue, food bank, yeah, cross, yeah, refugee help. There you all go. Those good causes. You know, one guy looks hungry. Yeah. All right. All right, James, my friend. Always a pleasure. Yes. Good night, Podland. Take care of yourselves. And good night to all our ships at sea. All right. Okay. Happy listening. We'll, we'll play out with uh, Vera Lynn singing Lily Marlene. Oh, very good. All right. Okay, cheers. Underneath the lantern by the barricade, darling, I remember the way you used to wait Twas there that you whispered tenderly That you loved me You'd always be My lily of the lamp light My own lily Marlene Time would come for roll call Time for us to part Darling, I'd caress you and press you to my heart And there neath that far-off lantern light I'd hold you tight, we'd kiss goodnight My lily of the lamplight My own lily Marlene Orders came for sailing Somewhere over there All confined to barracks Was more than I could bear I knew you were waiting in the street I heard your feet 
but could not meet my lily of the lamplight, my own lily Marley, resting in a village just behind the line. Even though we're parted, your lips are close to mine. You wait where that lantern softly gleams. Your sweet face seems to haunt my dreams. My lily of the 